welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 147th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. We first heard Jonathan Fowler in episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, 114, 115, 116, 119, 126, 127, 133, 137, 140, 146, and episode 82, which also featured fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a B.A. in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation, hopefully, talk pretty one day. And now, on to the show. I jumped in the shower. I got dressed. I ran out to try to buy some Indian food, but the Indian restaurant was closed already. Mm. Tried to get some uh, Japanese curry, but the Japanese curry restaurant was closed already. I grabbed a sub, and I was trying to snarf that sub here, but uh, didn't get it down, but that's okay. I got a little bit of energy for this conversation. <laughs> well, good. Um, yeah, so part two of our uh, Democratic uh, debate coverage here, and uh, ten more candidates to get through, so we got a lot to talk about. So, Well, as of today, it's down to nine now, right? You sent me the link that uh, Swalwell has dropped out. Yeah, but um, we may have another one that wasn't in this debate who may be getting in the next debate in the person of Steve Bullock, the Montana governor, uh, I believe, has made the uh, threshold by just the skin of his teeth. So. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, oh and uh, uh, Tom Steyer, the billionaire uh, guy who wants to impeach Trump, is also getting in the race, apparently, too, on the Democratic side. So, Oh, and Justin Amash might be running as an independent on you know a different note but good good yeah yeah that's that's a good thing that's i don't think we luck. need more billionaires in there right now but uh yeah mm-hmm. but uh justin Mosh, yeah i've been seeing him on tv and stuff for the past couple of days and mm-hmm. i don't know what a weird journey yeah He's like right palestinian american tea partier anti-trumper never trumper my god what a lane you know <laughs> <laughs> that's a meandering it's a long and winding road i suppose Absolutely. What do you, honestly, do you think, though, he could do more damage to Trump from within the Republican Party than outside of it? Because I know he'll probably siphon off a lot of votes if he does run it as an independent. But mm-hmm. do you think that maybe he should stay in the Republican Party instead and maybe run as a you know primary challenger to Trump? Would that hurt him more? Yeah, I, I don't know. Honestly, I, I just don't know what the barriers are to a primary challenger. We've been hearing about like, is it Bill Richardson, or is it somebody else who's talking about running as a primary challenger to Trump? Uh, the Trump only one that I know of that's thrown his hat in the ring is Bill Bill Weld. The uh, okay, that's who I'm thinking governor. about, not Bill yeah. Richardson. Other Bill, yeah, yeah, other pseudo libertarian type. Right. Wait, Bill Richardson. Wait a minute, is he a Democrat? I'm getting confused. I, I don't even know if that's a real person, Chuck. <laughs> no, he did something with North Korea. He visited oh. North Korea or something, and like. God, I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> the problem is like you you follow politics for 30 years or something. And like there's so many names that get lodged in your head for three to five years and then they kind of drop out and then you try to reference them. And it's like, oh, is this that person? Who is this person? Mm-hmm. There was a time where I thought they were going to matter, but maybe they ultimately didn't matter very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he was the governor of New Mexico from 2003 to 2011. 
Yeah, and didn't he do something? He went to North Korea or something on a diplomatic mission or something to. Uh, let me look. Get some people out or something. That could be right. Yeah, sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to make you fact check things in the middle of the pod, Bob. No, it's okay. The pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making no, it happen, Bob. Yep. Fetch is going to happen, okay? Fetch, yeah, right. <laughs> Stop trying to make Fetch happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the pod. Yes, you're right. He does occasionally, according to Wikipedia, uh, take that for what it's worth, he occasionally troubleshoots diplomatic issues with North Korea. So. Okay. <clears throat> see, see, my uh, my knowledge base is better than I better than I expected. Mm-hmm. So, all right, debate night two. I feel bad because we're getting to it so late but it's just like i don't know you look at these shows where they you know they have to react and analyze the news every single day and it's so hard because i mean granted we have jobs and stuff but it's just like on a day-to-day basis getting through a two and a half hour debate or something and you know making copious notes on it and figuring out who said what and what that means and how that affects everything is like it's a bit of work you know it's not Mm -hmm. like you know toiling in the fields or whatever but it's uh it it takes some time and some mental energy. Oh yeah, well, like I said, I'm still extracting quotes from the last one to to place in, so I hadn't even released our last one yet. But I do think it's better to give this time to marinate because people get uh, too enamored with the bright shiny objects of you know which was the most explosive moments or whatever, and they don't really take the time to go over what was said sometimes, and they just want the you know fight, 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 you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, but I do think like over time though, you do have the potential that you know media narratives get calcified in your brain right like i mean true i don't know yeah there's pros and cons both ways but yeah mm-hmm. i i tried to make notes of things as they as they struck me and stuff so that we mm-hmm. could uh yeah just uh i don't know i mean i i was still taking notes tonight on on swalwell even though we know that he dropped out so mm-hmm. well no i mean he's still running for the house so i mean what he says is still relevant as a politician in general so it's not as if and and you know joe biden did have to react to what he was saying about pass the torch which i'm sure we'll get to uh, so even if oh, he's God. not, you know, even if he's not there anymore, he's still, you know, he still changed, uh, you know, the narrative a little bit. So, yeah, watching Joe Biden's face, and I'm sure we'll get to this a little bit later, watching Joe Biden's kind of amused face when he was talking about pass the torch again and again versus Joe Biden's face when when uh, Kamala Harris went after him, mm-hmm. where he, it, it was amazing just to watch his reaction and on his face and stuff. And then. I think there was a second time towards the end of the debate where Swalwell was trying to start up the, you know, pass the torch chant again or something. Yeah. And Joe and Bernie Sanders shut him down pretty quickly. He's like, hey, this hurts me, too. <laughs> you know, so he, he didn't say that, but I think that was the message. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, OK, so, well, shall we set it up? I suppose who was there? Yeah. What was going on? We were on the, watching the second Democratic debate night two. The night after the first debate in Miami on, uh, on what June twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. I want to say it was a Friday, but maybe it was a Thursday. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I want to think it was Friday. Yeah, um, we had from left to right on the stage. We had author Miriam Williamson, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, uh, former Tech Executive Andrew Yang. Uh, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former Vice President Joe Biden and former Senator Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, California Senator Kamala Harris, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, 
Um, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, our second member from Colorado there. Mm-hmm. I was surprised not to see him and Hickenlooper go after each other more directly or something. Mm-hmm. Try to get that Colorado lane freed up for themselves. Kind of a repeat and, of uh, uh, Castro and, and Beto's throwdown. Oye, uh, oye. <laughs> Listen. <to me. laughs> yeah. And they're both from the same town in Texas, too. I didn't know that. Both oh, from boy, El, that both, town's both, not... both El Paso boys. <laughs> this debate stage not big enough to boast of us. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we had Eric Swalwell, California congressman. 4 1. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, he he couldn't make it happen. I guess mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, more power to the guy in the in the in what he's in the Congress, what he's doing there, mm-hmm. getting reelected, etc. Um, our hosts this time were Lester Holt, Savannah Guthrie, Jose Diaz Balart, Chuck Todd, and Rachel Maddow. Yeah, and so yeah, so that's our field, I guess. And I I will admit that I didn't really. They kind of started in with a question to Sanders, and I, I think that one of their first early topics was taxes. Maybe I'll be honest, I didn't take a lot of notes on that section. Um, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was, a, it, there were a lot of topics tonight, and people, you know, a lot of people going past their, uh, their 30 second limit or whatever they were supposed to have. And mm. yeah. Yeah, people just kind of get shouty in these things. I feel like they don't enforce the uh, time very well. Of course, they give you a minute to answer each question, right? That's 60 seconds every time they ask a question. But, you know, there's always the thing where they jump in. Can I respond? Can I just jump in here and say this? And they're always like, Lester Holt's always like, I shouldn't, but I will. You know, he's always like, yeah. got this look on they're... his face like, I want to see this play out. Where's the sparks? <laughs> yeah, they've, well, they, uh, yeah, they, uh, they they make they make a lot of they're pretty pretty gracious to the candidates I think which is I don't know pretty I mean it's good you know I I will say I don't think that you can I think it'd be a hard argument to make that they were unfair to people this time I mean sure they didn't uh, I don't know I, I I have I had some problems with that but go on no no go ahead I, well I'm just saying like aside from like Marion Williamson maybe Hickenlooper mm-hmm. and maybe Bennett like or I, I didn't feel like they avoided anybody too much. Maybe Yang. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. Yang didn't yeah. get any questions. And I felt like they were super dismissive of him because he's like that. He's kind of like Inslee, like we were talking about. He's got that one issue that he's running mm. on. And I feel, I feel like they're so dismissive of people that have one issue. But I don't know. I feel like they should be more like wh- why do like I, I know everyone's trying to find their lane. And that's that's the angle they're taking. But at the same time, it's like. They've picked important issues, and I think that we deserve to have a broader conversation about, uh, you know, these, you know, very important issues of universal basic income and climate change, uh, you know, and, you know, they did. So I felt like they were very dismissive of, of both Inslee and even to a greater extent Yang. So, yeah, well, I, I'm becoming more dismissive of Yang myself these days. Uh, really? Why is that? I mean, did we talk last time about what can I say? There was a situation where, what can I say? Um, well, let me think. Uh, the situation was that he is basically he, he basically said that he's he wants to use he was on a kind of some sort of a right wing podcast or something. I can't remember which one. And maybe you can drop the audio in here. But the host asked him, like, well, basically, like, can't we use the uh, universal basic income to kind of like wean people off of social programs like Medicare and Social Security and all this stuff? So they can. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this will be a choice. You can either 
accept the $1,000 a month, or you can continue to be on these other programs, but you can't do both. And so, yeah, we're going to mm-hmm. wean people off that. And that's that's just disqualifying for me. You can't justify, you know, they make these, you know, what do they say? Means testing is a dirty word or whatever with these kind of programs. But like, mm. you can't make the argument that that Donald Trump's children should be receiving a thousand dollars a month and they're just going to put it all in black or whatever at the, at the casino mm. versus you're going to make somebody else out there, a poor person choose between like, you know, disability benefits versus their $1,000 a month. That is absolute bullshit. And if well, I ever have a yeah. chance to talk to Andrew Yang, that's something I'm going to hit him on directly and ask him, what the hell is this? You can't make a means testing argument against means testing and then also say, well, you have to choose. Well, I guess the counter to that that I've heard him, I'm just parroting his, you know, arguments here, but uh, he says that the reason that he makes it that everyone gets it and it's not just like people that are super poor is that that way you don't have the thing of, oh, the welfare queen, the person that's just the taker, and then we're just looking down on people that don't have a lot. Why are you taking from me? If everyone gets it, that takes it away. And then if people who make more don't, you know, uh, want it, that's up to them. And, you know, this is, you know, I, I support universal basic income, but it's an expensive proposition and you've got to make room in the budget somewhere. I would personally take more from the military budget, but that's just me. But you know what I mean? It's a one and a half trillion. I think I heard per year, uh, proposition, which is almost half the federal budget. So, you know, there's gotta be some cuts somewhere, I guess. So my thing about it is like, I mean, I just, uh, I feel like, I mean, if they give, I mean, I think if they give people, I think it's a, a, a seductive, uh, offer for the American people to get a thousand dollars a month. But I mean, I think I can see businesses raising prices. I can see like inflation taking place because they say, Hey, everybody's got a thousand dollars more. I mean, we can afford to raise prices and people are not going to, you know, they're not going to bucket because, uh, you know, they've got the extra money in the bank or, you know, there'll be companies offering like, you know, car dealerships will be offering like, you know, oh, use that, use your universal basic income to put down a down payment on this car or something, you know, like mm-hmm. I can see it in marketing. I can see inflation happening potentially. I don't know. And I and I can see, yeah, I, I can just see like a lot of potentially bad things. I do think the thing that it addresses is the financial fear of the American pub- public, right? Mm-hmm. Like people feeling like, you know, my job's going away, my income's going down and not keeping up with inflation. I'm not investing. The stock market's doing well, but I'm not doing well. If you give mm-hmm. people a thousand dollars a year, that really cuts into that. Um, the fear that, you know, potentially had some effect on getting Donald Trump elected the first time. Yeah, definitely. So from a psychological perspective, I think I understand it, but mm-hmm. I think there's some wildly uh, unexamined outcomes that can come about from this thing potentially true it's never been tried on the scale you know he does talk about how you know in alaska they do this you know dividend from the you know oil uh, profits pipeline. or whatever but that's nowhere yeah. near the scale of that and it's just one state and it's not a thousand dollars a month i think it's like a thousand dollars a year or something so um but yeah anyway go on so. yeah yeah well i was you know born in alaska i don't know i think yeah I imagine my parents got that for a year or two while we were up there, but, right. but you know, that's, and that's, but that's from something that's coming from something that's coming from, you know, the oil wealth that's generated in that state. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you give everybody a thousand dollars a month 
$12,000 a year. That's, it does have to come from somewhere. And, you know, we're Democrats. We're not the ones who necessarily ask, you know, how are you going to pay for that? Although arguably we should more often with the way Republicans are such spendthrifts, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an issue. It's a weird issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I just, on another level, I have a hard time taking it seriously. We are dealing with fascism coming to America. We're dealing with, you know, children dying in these essentially concentration camps on the border down there and stuff that are for-profit prisons that benefit certain people, you know, and he's talking about giving every American a thousand dollars a month. It's like, I don't know, you know, the climate crisis and stuff like arguably Jay Inslee has a better, mm-hmm. better argument that his, uh, his single issue or whatever is more apropos or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I just think it's weird to be, I, I have a little bit of anger at every candidate who is not, um, who is distracting, I think, from the uni- uniquely dangerous time that we're in with their candidacy or the issues that they harp on and stuff. And so I, right. I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I ha- I did read a story in the New York Times about how uh, uh, Hickenlooper's campaign officials were even begging him to drop out and run for Senate instead and not focus on the presidency because, you know, as we've seen, who controls the Senate matters very much, you know, maybe not as much as the president in certain ways, but a whole bunch. So if, you know, we don't want to, you know, I, I think, and I, I res- you know, respect to Swalwell for, for keeping his eye on the ball. You know, he has lots of time to, you know, I think he doesn't have to file for Congress until like December, I read. Um, but, you know, we need to keep our eye on that branch of government, too. We can't just be so focused on the big horse race to get to the White House that we forget. You know, we need the Senate. We need the House. We got these other races to worry about. So, yeah. Yeah. I think Kentucky is my number one Senate race right now. Yeah. He see. just got a challenger. Good. Yeah. Yep. He needs to be gone. That guy has got to go. He's super McConnell. popular in Kentucky, and the guy, that's, or the woman that's running against him, I believe, only lost her house seat by three points, I read. So, hmm. I mean, seems like maybe if there's some sort of uh, Blue Wave 2.0 or something, we can maybe, uh, let's see, Amy McGrath is her name. So Okay. All right. Well, more power to her, I suppose. I mean. Yeah. 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 I think, I think it's rare that somebody this high up in the, you know, Senate power structure um gets taken out but i don't know sometimes the sun goes round the moon right <laughs> who said that was that celine dion what was that uh was oh, the song is the song save the best for last i don't remember yeah who did it. Now, sophie b hawkins no oh yeah well, maybe no not mariah carey tony braxton <laughs> Keep, keep, keep guessing. I'm we're, using Google. <laughs> we're taking a deep dive into my uh, my middle school dance uh, soundtrack here on the pod today. Vanessa Williams. There you go. Yeah, that was that was probably my fifth guess. Yeah, good <laughs> good singer. Wow, what a tune. Uh-huh. Tune, as the British sure. might say. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> let's see. I w- w- let's pick up where I started taking more detailed notes, which was, um, you know, again, we talked last time about Castro's, uh, thing about the, uh, the section of the law that makes it a crime to cross the border rather than a a civil infraction. And they asked that question again, um, civil offense rather than a crime to cross the border. And a lot of people raised their hands. Uh, Williamson, 
Yang, Buttigieg, uh, Bernie, Harris, Gillibrand, Swalwell all raised their hand. Bennett and Hickenlooper did not. And Joe Biden, at first I thought he was raising his hand, but he was raising one finger. And then they, they drilled down on that. And they came back to him like three times trying to get him to give an answer on that. And he very much avoided the question in a way. And, you know, Vice President Biden, I believe you said that your health care plan would not cover undocumented immigrants. Could you explain your position? I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. I believe at the show of hands, you did not raise your hand. Did you raise your hand? No, I did. Okay. sorry. Sorry. So so you said they would be covered under your plan, which yes. is different than Obamacare. Yes, but here, here's Can you the thing. explain that change? Yes. You cannot let, as, as the mayor said, you cannot let people who are sick, no matter where they come from, no matter what their status, go uncovered. You can't do that. It's just going to be taken care of, period. You have to. It's a humane thing to do. But here's the deal. The deal is that he's right about three things. Number one, they, in fact, contribute to the well-being of the country, but they also, for example, they've increased the lifespan of Social Security because they're, they have a job, they're paying a Social Security tax. That's what they're doing. It's increased the lifespan. They would do the same thing in terms of reducing the overall cost of health care by them being able to be treated and not wait till they're an extremist. The other thing is, folks, look, we can deal with these insurance companies. We can deal with the insurance companies by, number one, putting insurance executives in jail for their misleading they're misleading advertising, what they're doing on opioids, what they're doing paying doctors to prescribe. We should we could be doing this by making sure everyone who is on Medicare, that the government should be able to negotiate the price for whatever whatever the drug costs are. We can do this by making sure that we're in a position that we, in fact, allow people. Give me time's up. I, I just time's want to address that point. Actually, you can hold off a minute. We need to take a short break here. Very evasive. Uh, I... I think he his focus was not on let's not make it a crime, but let's just choose not to enforce it as a as a crime or something, which is, again, you're really splitting that issue quite a bit to get to that point. And, you know, and in a way you're leaving the the Republicans a talking point like it's a crime, but the Democrats don't want to enforce the law. We're the law and order party, except when we have Donald Trump in there and then there is no crime. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, no points to Biden for for that you know, equivocating on that issue, I think. Uh, Hickenlooper and Bennett, I, I don't know, I've heard Bennett a couple times on different podcasts recently. I think he was on, like, maybe he was on, he was on the, the was the Vox, uh, Vox Ezra, Media. Ezra yeah, he was on the Ezra Klein show, he was on there, and then he was also on the five, not five, I forget if it was 538 or it might have been, uh, might have been, Pod Save America. I forget which one it was. I think it was Pod Save America that he was on after that. So I've heard him two times on those things. And mm. I don't know. Yeah, he's he's kind of got a hard on for McConnell as far, which is probably a smart thing. Um, he does seem to want to tack to the middle quite strongly in a lot of ways. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hickenlooper also, I think, gave the speech where he, you know, criticized democratic socialism or whatever and stuff and said we can't go that route and this time i think he said at one point that what did he say he said uh uh unless we denounce socialism the republicans are going to call us socialist only one candidate on this stage senator sanders identifies himself as a democratic socialist what are the policies or positions of your opponents that you think are veering towards socialism well i think that The bottom line is, if we don't clearly define that we are not socialists, 
The Republicans are going to come at us every way they can and, and call us socialists. And if you look at the Green New Deal, which I admire the sense of urgency and how important it is to do climate change. I'm a scientist, but we can't promise every American a government job. If you want to get universal health care coverage, I believe that health care is a right and not a privilege. But you can't expect to eliminate private insurance for 180 million people, many of whom who don't want to give it up. In Colorado, we brought businesses and nonprofits together. We got the <coughs> near universal health care coverage. We were the first state in America to, to bring the environmental community and the oil and gas industry to address aggressively address methane emissions. And we were also the first place to, to expand reproductive rights on a scale basis, and we reduced teen pregnancy by 54%. We've done the big progressive things that people said couldn't be done. I've done what pretty much everyone else up here is still talking about doing. It's like, wake up, idiot. Republicans call any Democrat socialist no matter what the hell their actual policy is. Yeah. You get out of the race. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if that's the if that's what you're going to harp on, grow, grow up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You can't disown socialism enough. Mm-hmm. They'll they'll call you a socialist. So. Yeah. Well, that's why I always respected Bernie for owning the word, because he realizes that, you know, you take the power away from them when you define it yourself and you don't let the other side. Because we've literally seen Mitch McConnell and the rest of these people define socialism as just whatever they don't like. Speaker Pelosi is opening up a new front in her war against the Trump administration and Republican leadership in Congress. Here she is taking a shot at my next guest. Leader McConnell seems to take great pride in calling himself the Grim Reaper. It's part of his political campaign. It's part of the pride he takes as leader of the Senate. And as you see what he wants to bury, none of these things are going to pass. They won't even be voted on. So think of me as the Grim, Grim Reaper. <laughs> the Grim Reaper? What? Well, Senator McConnell, your response to these new attacks from Nancy Pelosi, complete senator with props and poster boards at yeah. McConnell's graveyard. <laughs> She's got it right. She's got it absolutely right. I, for the first time in my memory, I agree with Nancy Pelosi. I am indeed the Grim Reaper when it comes to the socialist agenda that they've been ginning up over in the House with overwhelming Democratic support and sending it over to America, things that would turn us into a country we've never been. They're on the way to doing some additional things, in addition to the ones they've already done, uh, the Green New Deal, uh, Medicare for All. And by the way, you may have mentioned this on your show, but they had planned uh, plan to, uh, to make the District of Columbia a state that given two new Democratic senators, uh, Puerto Rico a state given two more new Democratic senators. And as a former Supreme Court clerk yourself, you've surely noticed that they plan to expand the Supreme Court. So this is a full bore socialism on the march in the House. And yeah, as long as I'm the majority leader of the Senate, none of that stuff is going anywhere. Senator, is there anything that can get done for the good of the country with this hot political climate that we're in? I mean, we're going to talk about this crisis at the border, what we're seeing with, with people coming across the border, several hundred just in the last few weeks from uh, African countries now. Well, I can tell you what we're going to do. On the humanitarian part of the problem down at the border, uh, Senate Democrats insisted on stripping that out. It, it, I think it's fair to say the president's had more cooperation from the Mexicans than he has from the House and Senate Democrats so far 
on dealing with this crisis. Well, the other, the, yeah, the other thing we're hearing a lot from even some of your Republican colleagues is this concern that you refuse to move legislation that would protect the country from future election meddling. The New York Times uh, writing in a piece today, uh, partisan politics is the reason McConnell is standing in the way of better election security. For him, all that matters is the win, even if he compromises and corrupts our democracy, Senator. That's what they're saying about you and saying, look, even Marco Rubio wants some legislation. Yeah, what, what nonsense. Look, I think you ought to compare the 2018 election when the Trump administration was in charge to the 2016 election when the Obama administration was in charge. Any stories about the last election? Just a handful of minor stories. This administration did a terrific job of working with state and local officials to make sure that we had an honest election in 2018 with minimal to no interference. Where is the applause for that? I'm open to considering legislation, but it has to be directed in a way that doesn't undermine state and local control of elections. The Democrats, Laura, would like to nationalize everything. They want the federal government to take over broad swaths of the election process because they think that would somehow benefit them. Election security, I do care about, but we need to make sure the subject is election security. And, Senator, of course, the big news yesterday was when George Stephanopoulos sidles around the Oval Office desk and presents this scenario to the president, where foreign government comes and plops down APA research about uh, his uh, opponent. And the president said, well, maybe I'd go to the FBI, but you know, I'd probably listen to the information. Do you have a problem with that answer? Because the Democrats seem to be taking that and saying, aha, see, we told you so. Now it's on to impeachment. They just can't let it go, Laura. You know, I said weeks ago, case closed. We got the Mueller report, the only objective evaluation that will be conducted. Nobody has any confidence that the Democratic House is going to engage in any kind of appropriate oversight. The case is closed. Why don't we move on and solve the border crisis and prove the president's USMCA, the new trade deal with Mexico and Canada. We have work to do. But do you think is the president? Do you think the president made a mistake in the way he answered that question when he said, "Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't." You know, I'd hear what I'd hear well, him out. Do, would you answer that question that well, way? Well, he, he gets he gets picked at every day over every different aspect of it. But the fundamental point is, they're trying to keep the 2016 election alive and the investigation alive when the American people have heard enough. They got the Mueller report. They would like for us to do some business. I would ask uh, the Democrats in the House this. Is there anything you're willing to do other than harass the president for the next two years? Anything at all? And, Senator, finally, I want to turn to the courts, an issue, obviously, uh, you care near uh, a lot about, with all the confirmations uh, successful that you've gotten through. And President Trump has always been pretty transparent about potential nominees. However, I think the left is basically getting ready to, as you mentioned earlier, try to pack the courts in the unlikely event that they win in 2020. It's all being funded, we found out yesterday, by dark money groups who won't, you know, names we won't know are not going to be revealed. And this comes as Ron Klain, a former Obama and Clinton aide, warns, quote, the next decade could feature a radical right Supreme Court that would not only narrow past gains, but also erect barriers to prevent progressive political action. So which is it? Will the courts be champions for the left, or are they just too, too darn far right? 
The kind of people the president's been nominating and we've been confirming believe in the simple, quaint notion that maybe judges ought to follow the law. I'm amazed that that's controversial, but their being upset about it reveals that they want the judiciary to be just like a legislative body and to have outcomes in mind before they've heard the arguments. With regard to the nominees, not only the president made two great Supreme Court nominees and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, but we're making an important difference for the country that will last for a very long time. And my motto for this Congress is leave no vacancy behind, either in circuit judges or district judges. All right, Senator McConnell, thanks so much for spending some time with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know, if you own it and define it for them, it takes the power away because you don't let them, you know, control the narrative as much. So, yeah, although I, I think that getting too married to that term is uh, kind of a mistake, I think. Like, I mean, the I mean, the policies or whatever, that's the important part. Um, but if you, you know, like Bernie are giving a speech where you're basically defining and defending being a socialist or democratic socialist, it's like. Don't be so pedantic or semantic or whatever, you know, just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that I don't think that Warren is stupid to basically advocate for almost the same thing, but put it in a different framing, which is that I'm still a capitalist. Right. Because, I mean, thanks for being with us. Delighted to be here. Um, let me start with a question just about the predicament the country's in right now. Uh -huh. There are some people who look at what happened in Helsinki, uh, what happened with NATO and the G7, yeah. Mueller investigation, and say, well, we have a president who's very unusual, eccentric, but the government's kind of running on a separate track from the president. There are other people who are more alarmed who think that we're actually in a national security emergency at the moment where the... Uh, behavior of the president is uh, urgently problematic. What do you think? So I see this as the behavior of the president is deeply problematic. And the reason for that is he puts us in a very different place internationally. He attacks our allies and cuddles up to dictators. And by attacking our allies, he not only distances us from them, he also is basically teaching our allies they can get along without us. He's, he's, does the dollar have to be the reserve currency? You know, that's of enormous value to America. But if you've got an unstable leader, everybody else starts to back up and say, wait a minute, I want to rethink that. But do you, think, do you have any um, belief or concern that it's more than instability, that uh, some people, John Brennan of others, have suggested that Vladimir Putin has something on him, and that makes him a Russian asset. Look, I don't know. All I can do is measure what he does. Mm -hmm. And when he stands up and attacks our intelligence agencies and attacks our law enforcement officers and then defends a country that has launched a cyber attack on the United States, and indeed seems to go wink, wink, nod, nod, mm -hmm. then boy, he is not serving the interests of the United States of America. The fact that I'm asking you that question uh, is an indication of how people's nerves have gotten jangled by the mm -hmm. moment that we're in. 
when you think about what you and fellow Democrats need to do in response, do you see more of an imperative to calm, soothe, or fight? Oh, I think there are two things Democrats need to do. One is to be really clear about what we stand for, and the second is to be really clear that we're willing to fight for it. And we believe there's, there's value in each of us and that government can be a real force for good on health care, on helping our kids get an education, on building the infrastructure we need to build, on fighting back this horrible opioid crisis, on investing in medical research. These are the things we can do together. I think the key for us, ah, here we go. Thank you. That looks really good, thanks. Mm. What have I got here? Okay, this looks good. You are more polarizing than some. And my question to you is, do you embrace that? Are you happy with that? Uh, what do you think? You know, that's funny you'd say that. I actually don't see it that way. I see it as wherever I go, people know what I fight for. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks agree with me, and even a lot of folks who don't respect the fact that I'm pretty darn clear about it. And pretty straightforward about my fights for it. But you recognize that, say, with business people, with Wall Street, you're a very polarizing figure. You know, look, I get that there are a lot of folks who like having the power and the riches they have. They like being able to tweak their little pinky and the United States government does just what they want. They like being able to get regulations rolled back or not enforced. I totally get that. Mm -hmm. And I get that I, I push hard against that, that I may be a threat to them on that. But my view on that is don't call me the polarizing figure. They're the ones who want to take advantage of this country. They're the ones who want to cheat. They're the ones who want to say that their personal wealth, their power is more important than building an America that works for everyone. You don't think capitalists are bad people? I'm a capitalist. Come on. I believe in markets. What I don't believe in is theft. What I don't believe in is cheating. That's where the difference is. I love what markets can do. I love what functioning economies can do. They are what make us rich. They are what create opportunity. But only fair markets. Markets with rules. Markets without rules is about the rich take it all. It's about the powerful get all of it. Are you concerned about the high deficit or are you willing, uh, as you think about what Democrats might want to do, Medicare for all, for example, very expensive. Look, of course I worry about the deficit, but I also worry about how we build a future. And right now, we're choking off the future mm -hmm. for young people. We're choking off the future for hardworking families who are watching the cost of their health insurance And that's a bigger problem up. right now than the that deficit. That is a big problem right now. You've talked about how you grew up on the jagged edge of the middle class. Donald Trump appealed to people on the jagged edge of the middle class. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think he's doing for them? And if you think he's not doing well, as I suspect, what would you do for rusted out factory towns, coal towns, 
well, let's start with Donald Trump. He made big promises uh, to a lot of people who've just gotten the short end of the stick over and over and over. And he not only hasn't delivered on those promises, he's literally turned in exactly the opposite direction. For me, what this would all be about is investing in all of America. And the best place for me to start is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, infrastructure is like plowing your fields. Mm -hmm. If you plow your fields, you can grow things okay. in the future. If you don't plow your fields, you can't. But we also have a tremendous racial polarization in our politics uh, that has made it difficult for Democrats to uh, attract votes from some of those people. So I remember a conversation I had with President Obama a few years ago. I said, are you concerned about this racial polarization? He said, no. When, when uh, those uh, uh, working class white voters recognize what Obamacare is going to do for them, they will come around. That has not happened. So look. What I think is going on here is that Donald Trump identifies a real problem in America, and that is a lot of folks are hurting. And then he takes a turn and says, and it's the fault of those people. Mm -hmm. People who don't look like you, mm -hmm. people who don't sound like you, people who don't worship like you, mm -hmm. people who are not the same color, who didn't speak the same language, fill in the blank. It is their fault. What he wants to do is set working people against working people. Black working people against white working people. How can you make that case better than Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or John Kerry? I, I can't look backwards at how anybody tried to make that case. All I can say is I live this. I know this in my heart. This is what is etched on my heart. We can build a government that works for us, a government that works for people who get out every day and try to build something for themselves and for their families. And if, if government is on their side, instead of on the side of the billionaires, instead of on the side of the giant corporations, this country knows no limits. It is an optimistic story of what we can do together, but we've got to have government on our side. President Obama's coalition, very heavy on young people, very heavy on non-whites. Hillary Clinton was not able to motivate those people in the same, uh, uh, with the same success in 2016. There's some people who are making the argument that to really uh, energize that coalition, to uh, succeed as a party, Democrats need to go down a generation and have someone younger, um, uh, you know, some, one of the 40 or 50-somethings who are looking at uh, uh, running for president. What do you think about that argument? I don't know. I think you need a political pundit to look at that one. All I know is why I'm in this fight. And I'm going to fight as hard as I Could can. Could you do it? Look, I'm in the fight right now. Right now, we better stay focused on 2018. I mean, everybody's still basically a capitalist. Nobody's talking about really, you know, seizing the means of production and privatizing a bunch of industries. I mean, people talk about the tech industry, but Nobody's talking about that broadly or widespread and stuff. So it's it's like, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So that was that issue. Uh, let's see. On trade, uh, I think Yang said that Russia is the biggest threat. Bennett said Russia is the biggest threat. The topic was trade, but somehow they got to the you know the biggest global threat, and I think it was through the 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 uh, what can we say through the prism of trade and. 
We're going to turn to the issue of trade now, if we can. Last night, we asked the candidates on this stage to name the greatest geopolitical threat facing the U.S. Four of them mentioned China. U.S. businesses say China steals our intellectual property, and party leaders on both sides accuse China of manipulating their currency to keep the cost of goods artificially low. I'll ask this to Senator Bennett to start off with. How would you stand up to China? I think that, first of all, the, the, biggest, the, the biggest threat to our national security right now is Russia, not China. And second, on China, we've got competition because of what they've done with our election. In China, I think the president's been right to push back on, on China, but has done it in completely the wrong way. We should mobilize the entire rest of the world, who all have a shared interest in pushing back on China's mercantilist trade policies, and I think we can do that. I'd like to answer the other question before this as well. You're, you have the time. When I, when, I, when I see these kids at the border, I see my mom because I know she sees herself, because she was separated from her parents for years during the Holocaust in Poland. And for Donald Trump to be doing what he's doing, to children and their families at the borders. I say this as somebody who wrote the immigration bill in 2013 that created a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people in this country that had the most progressive DREAM Act that's ever been conceived, much less passed. It got 68 votes in the Senate. That had $46 billion of border security in it that was sophisticated 21st century border security, not a medieval wall. And Senator the president has turned the border of the United States into a symbol Senator, of nativist hostility that the whole world is looking at when what we should be represented Senator, by you. is the Statue of Liberty, which has brought my parents to this country to begin with. We need to make a change. Mr. Yang, let me bring you in on this, on the issue of China. You have, you've expressed a lot of concerns about technology and taking jobs. Are you worried about China? And if so, how would you stand up against it? Well, I just want to agree that I think Russia is our greatest geopolitical threat because they've been hacking our democracy successfully, and they've been laughing their asses off about it for the last couple of years. So we should focus on that before we start worrying about uh, other threats. Now, China, they do, uh, they do pirate our intellectual property. It's a massive problem. But the tariffs and the trade war are just punishing businesses and, pro and producers and workers on both sides. I met with a farmer in Iowa who said he spent six years building up a buying relationship in China that's now disappeared and gone forever. And the beneficiaries have not been American workers or, or people in China. It's been Southeast Asia and other producers that have then stepped into the void. So we need to, to crack down on Chinese uh, malfeasance in the trade relationship, but the tariffs and the trade war are the wrong way to go. So I, I, both, I think they're both quite right about that. I mean, obviously, China's a bigger trade threat. I don't know that the Russian economy is scaring many people these days, but... Mm -hmm. um, Race. Okay, race was the, the third issue I took copious notes on, and this is where the, you know, moment of the night happened. Um, mm -hmm. And let's see. Uh, I think they started off with Buttigieg, and they said, mm -hmm. um, he famously said, you know, you had this, this shooting. Um, you had a guy, uh, Eric Logan, was murdered by or killed by a white police officer in South Bend, Indiana. You know, yada, yada, yada. He said, I couldn't get it done as far as like, you know, fixing the racial issues within his potentially within his um, his police department or whatever. And I we are going to begin this hour uh, with Mayor Buttigieg. Uh, in the last five years, civil rights activists in our country have led a national debate over race and the criminal justice system. Your community of South Bend, Indiana, has recently been in uproar over an officer involved shooting. 
The police force in South Bend is now 6% black in a city that is 26% black. Why has that not improved over your two terms as mayor? Because I couldn't get it done. My community is in anguish right now because of an officer-involved shooting, a black man, Eric Logan, killed by a white officer. And I'm not allowed to take sides until the investigation comes back. The officer said he was attacked with a knife, but he didn't have his body camera on. It's a mess, and we're hurting. And I could walk you through all of the things that we have done as a community, all of the steps that we took from bias training to de-escalation, but it didn't save the life of Eric Logan. And when I look into his mother's eyes, I have to face the fact that nothing that I say will bring him back. This is an issue that is facing our community and so many communities around the country. And until we move policing out from the shadow of systemic racism, whatever this particular incident teaches us, we will be left with the bigger problem of the fact that there's a wall of mistrust put up one racist act at a time, not just from what's happened in the past, but from what's happening around the country in the present. It threatens the well-being of every community. And I am determined to bring about a day when a white person driving a vehicle and a black person driving a vehicle, when they see a police officer approaching, feels the exact same Mayor. thing, a feeling not of fear, but of safety. I am determined That's to bring time. that day about. Mayor. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Mr. If I could ask one, one question, just because I think... Governor, I'll give you 30 seconds. I think that uh, the question they're asking in South Bend, I think in cities across the country, is why has it taken so long? Uh, we had a shooting when I first became mayor, 10 years before Ferguson, and the community came together, and we created an office of the Independent Monitor, a civilian oversight commission. We diversified the police force in two years. We actually did de-escalation training. I think the real question that America should be asking is why, five years after Ferguson, Every city doesn't have this level of police accountability. Governor Hickenlooper, thank we, you. I've got to respond to that. Look, we've taken so many steps toward police accountability that you know, the FOP just denounced me for too much accountability. We're obviously not there yet. And if, I accept if responsibility if camera, if for that because I'm that in charge. If policy, you should fire the chief. So under Indiana law, this will be investigated, and there will be accountability for the officer involved. But you're the mayor. You should fire the chief if that's the policy and someone died. All of these issues are extremely important, but there are specifics, there are symptoms, and the underlying cause has to do with deep, deep, deep realms of racial injustice, both in our criminal justice system and in our economic system. And the Democratic Party should be on the side of reparations for slavery for this very reason. I do not believe, I do not believe that the average American is a racist, but the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race in the United States. Uh, Ms. Williamson, like thank you very much. The Vice President of Biden, I'm gonna, we're going to get to you. Hang on. We're going to get to you. On stage, I would like to speak I, I, on the issue of race. We will give you 30 seconds since we're going to come back to you on, on this again in just a moment. Go for 30 seconds. Okay. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a coworker, who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm gonna now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you 
when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a, a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. Senator Harris, thank, thank you. you. Vice President Biden, you have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President Biden. It's a mischaracterization of my position across the board. I did not praise racist. That is not true, number one. Number two, if we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out and I left a good law firm to become a public defender when, in fact, when, in fact, when, in fact, my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. Number one. Now, number two, as the U.S. as excuse me, as the uh, uh, vice president of the United States, I work with a man who, in fact, we worked very hard to see to it we dealt with these issues in a major, major way. The fact is that, in terms of busing, the busing I never you would have been able to go to school the same exact way because it was a local decision made by your city council. That's fine. That's one of the things I argued for that we should not be we should be breaking down these lines. But so the bottom line here is, look, everything I've done in my career, I ran because of civil rights. I continue to think we have to make fundamental changes in civil rights. And those civil rights, by the way, include not just only African-Americans, but the LGBT community. But they, Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then? No, do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I oppose. Well, I there did was not a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the, the second class to integrate Berkeley, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a so local decision. So that's where the federal government must step now, in. That's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that's there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of I all people. I have supported the okay, ERA from the very beginning when Vice I ran President for the Biden, 30 seconds, because I want to bring you know, other people into this. I supported I the ERA from the very beginning. I'm the guy that extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. We got to the place where we got 98 out of 98 votes in the United States Senate doing it. I've also argued very strongly that we, in fact, deal with the notion of denying people access to the ballot box. I agree that everybody wants they in fact they anyway my time's up i'm sorry i don't know i'll be honest i haven't read a very detailed account of exactly what happened there 
apparently the police officer said the guy had a knife, but the body cam wasn't on, so nobody knows. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It'd be a pretty messed up thing if the guy did really have a knife, did try to attack the police officer, and, you know, this whole issue has happened, you know, mm-hmm. when it was potentially somewhat of a justified shoot. Uh, but at the same time, like, we have the the track record of the police officers in many, many places you know, they write the reports, right? So whatever they say happened is how it went down. And if they turn off their body cams and stuff, potentially they, whatever they do there, I don't know. It's, they don't have a lot of credibility and it's, it's definitely hurt Buttigieg in a very big way. So that was kind of the jumping off point, I think. Mm-hmm. And of course that, that led to some real fireworks. Um, uh, I, I think Buttigieg, he gave a, bit of a speech and he said he had this one part where he said uh, i'm determined to bring about a day when a white person driving a vehicle and a black person driving a vehicle when they see a police officer approaching feel the exact same thing and he's about to finish this sentence and i'm thinking like unmitigated terror horror <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that's you know you know you're in trouble when the police officer's approaching your car you already did something wrong you fucked up <laughs> it's like are we all gonna feel that and he's like no and he says they're all going to feel the exact same thing, a feeling not of fear, but of safety. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, dude, come on. I, nobody feels safety when they're in trouble, right? Like you've been driving <laughs> driving 56 and a 55, as Jay-Z once said in one of his songs. I believe songs. you said 54 like, and a 55, but yes. He, 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 no, he's, I, no yep. you're doing, he's like, you're doing 55 and a 54 or something. He made it, like, very right. obvious that it was a ridiculous, like, they, yeah. the law was, yeah. Right. I, you'll have to maybe... I don't know. No, how I think you got it right the second time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was something that highlighted the absurdity of the infraction. So it was a great line. I still remember that line. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, when you're in trouble with the police, nobody's thinking about safety. They're like, Oh God, I'm going to get a ticket. I'm in trouble. I did something wrong. You know, nobody enjoys that. So I hope they don't but, look in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> there's all kinds of things you might think, but uh, depending on what you're doing and what you have, <laughs> But nobody feels safety. But yeah, the greater point is taken. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. African-Americans in America do have a whole different like vector of fears to consider in that scenario, potentially. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a good speech. But, you know, I don't know. At the same time, like this has happened to uh, Buttigieg. I mean, it hasn't happened to Buttigieg. It happened to Eric Logan. But it's affecting Buttigieg's campaign in a time when there's 20 people in the race. And how many of those people have had racial, racially um, inflammatory shootings happen in their states or their cities over the years? And yet, you know, this guy gets attacked for it. It's, you know, it, timing matters, but, you know, it's a national issue. It's not just it's certainly not just or even primarily an Indiana issue, I would say, as a Hoosier. No, definitely not. No. So, um Let's see. Uh, Williamson, Marianne Williamson said there should be reparations for slavery. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if we've talked about that before. I think this is a a giant red herring of an issue. You know, it's something that they want you to get in on with a very unrealistic proposition that may or may not be justified, but it's a very unrealistic proposition. And if you support it, then, you know, you're giving ammunition to the Republicans. If you don't support it, you're going to get killed by the Democrats in the primary um, Mm -hmm. as being out of touch on the issue. And it's like, 
I don't see us in five years having instituted reparations, no matter who the president is. Right. Mm-hmm. It's 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 to me, it's just such a red herring. And like and how do you how do you apportion it and how what percentage does a person get? And what if what if, you know, your great great grandfather was like Thomas Jefferson or no, no. Who was it? The, the slave owner who impregnated his own slaves? Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I yeah, mean, he, wasn't, he was certainly wasn't the only one, but yes. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying like, what if your great, great, great grandfather was Thomas Jefferson? And so like one half of your ancestry very clearly owns owes reparation to the other half of your ancestry. I mean, how do they mitigate that? I'm mm. obviously you're probably getting reparations, I guess. But like, you know, when it comes when it comes to like, like, you know, if I'm a white person whose ancestors own slaves and you, too, are the half white person whose ancestors own slave. But then you're also half mm-hmm. a, half ancestors own slaves. It's like. You know, it's it, it becomes hard to make the argument that I should pay and not get anything and you should not pay and get something or pay and get something. I, I don't know. I don't know. I have to maybe I need to read some more Ta-Nehisi Coates or something. But yeah, like, I was going to say, we, we have to get Ta-Nehisi Coates on here to ask him some of these questions. He's yeah. thought about this more than I have. So reach out to him, Bob. Try to get him on the pod. You know, Marianne Williamson, like I, I, in any case, I think she was totally out of touch in this situation. I mean, we're talking about police shooting and race and. This is just not what's going on right now in the conversation, but that's where she went. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, let's see. Uh, the, we had the first attack of the night, which was really an interesting attack because it really bounced off the Buttigieg issue, uh, which is um, Harris. She went from the, the Buttigieg issue and went directly after Joe Biden, which was not a logical leap not what we were talking about and she used it and i think i mentioned this in the last episode she was like you know she she claimed reclaimed her time as it were uh being that she was the only person of color on stage and i thought she was going to talk about police shootings at that point because that was the issue at hand right i mean that's what we were talking Mm. about and she would have had you know good cause to talk about that she was a prosecutor i'm sure she's dealt with this kind of situations before so i was kind of expecting to hear a you know a soliloquy on police shootings but no no she had a she had a preloaded uh, bomb to throw at uh, old joe biden which she was just itching to get off you know she she had to yeah yeah. There were many cases, I think, where like people were, you know, they were <laughs> attempting to do an info dump on something that they had memorized very clearly for <laughs> the thing. And, and that's not to say that's wrong. I mean, if you you memorized it, you want to use hey. it. I can understand that. And also she was extremely like surgically precise in her effectiveness of just, you know, just crippling, decimating Joe Biden in this moment. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed is that several times when people were going after somebody, I, I can't imagine the pressure of that kind of a scenario where you're on the debate stage. Anything that you say to somebody that's critical of them, you're risking them coming back at you in a more effective way. Um, so I understand that there's a lot of things you have to consider, a lot of worries, a lot of danger there every time you go after somebody. But um, I noticed like there were three different times where somebody went after somebody and they, they misspoke or they said something wrong or they mixed up some word or something when they did it because they were just so nervous to be going after somebody. So mm-hmm. that was definitely a theme that I noticed in this in this, you know, high stakes environment. But so, yeah, she's let's see. What did she say? She she said, well, you know, she basically said that, you know, she was a second generation beneficiary of the federally mandated busing. Uh, to integrate schools uh, during the civil rights movement and that Joe Biden had opposed the federally mandated busing at that time. 
And Joe Biden, you know, made some arguments that, well, you know, your your area was not bust federally. It was bust locally. And so it worked. And she's like, yeah, but this is states rights don't work and stuff. You know, you can't always trust the states to do the right thing. And I'll be honest, I wasn't alive back then. I don't know exactly how it worked. I don't know how popular federally mandated busing was versus locally or this and that, I, th- I think. But um, mm-hmm. she said at one point, she kind of misspoke. She said, she, me and my sister and I had to deal with this neighbor who told us that her parents couldn't play with us because she, well, because we were black. It's like, wait, your parent, your neighbor, you, another girl, your neighbor told you that her parents couldn't play with you? So it it was like that was one of those moments where somebody was going in on the attack and they got nervous and they slipped up and they they misspoke a little bit. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, she was surgically precise in her effect, but there were, you know, a couple of missteps in the delivery, perhaps. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In the, whole, the meantime, the whole time that she's going after Joe Biden and his face, like, you know, there was just such a marked contrast between when Eric Swallow went after him with the, you know, the torch comments and stuff, the torch chant thing. And in this time, Joe Biden's his eyes were down and then his eyes started coming up and he was scared. He was a little cowed. And then when she got to the point where she said, you know, and that little girl was me, he kind of like looked over at her and he looked like he was about to cry and something like. And I, I think I saw an interview a few days ago with him on CNN where he said he was kind of like taken off guard by this attack from her. You know, he he's he said, like, you know, I we know each other. She knows me. She knows my wife. She knew my son when he was alive and stuff. And just for her to go on this kind of a this this harsh of attack was a little bit. You know, and and I think watching her face during this exchange was interesting, too. She did not look very happy to be making this attack. She was, you know, they both looked like they could start crying at any moment. But so there was there was definitely some like some high drama there or something. But like but mm-hmm. she, you know, pressed on and kept up the attack on him and it was absolutely decimating it was and you know even though i have questions about you know the genuineness of her umbrage uh the uh you know uh the the timing of it as i said you know in the debate i still think it says something that somebody from who you know who is an ally of yours in every other way can can wound you that doesn't speak very well of how you know how would biden face up against a trump if he can't even, you know, deal with uh, somebody like Harris attacking him from his own side. So eh, I, don't, I don't know. I think I think the Harris attack is much harder to deal with. It's harder to get attacked by somebody on your side than by, you know, represent reprehensible, you know, in individual like Donald Trump, who has no ground to stand on when it comes to race issues at all. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing in his history that he could point to. He can say, oh, the economy's better for African-Americans and Hispanics under me. But nothing else that he could possibly say would put him on anywhere near equal grounding with, uh, with Joe mm-hmm. Biden, but yeah. 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 It, it was, it was, it was a moment. And in the whole time Bernie Sanders is like stuck right between these two. There's a Korean expression that, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to remember exactly how it goes and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it was like when the, when the, when the whales, when whales battle, the shrimp explode or shrimp's backs explode. Hmm. Do you understand? Mm, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> when whales are battle, when the whales are fighting, a shrimp's back explodes. Okay. Back explodes. I don't yeah. know. Okay. Not well, sure basically I, it means when, 
<laughs> Basically, they're saying when when big big powers are fighting, then the the small people get stuck in the middle or destroyed. Ah, okay. Okay. I see. And I'm not suggesting that Bernie Sanders is a small person, but he was a person who was in the middle, who was keeping his head down while these two, you know, these two were trading massive body blows right right to his left and his right. So that was an interesting mm. moment to watch. Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good expression, I think. Mm. Um, Swalwell tried to jump in on on Buttigieg after he said, "You should fire the chief, but you're the but you're the mayor. You should fire the chief if that's the policy." And someone died, but he, he sounded like really whiny, kind of, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, he he again he had that. Okay, uh, Congressman Swalwell, I talk a little bit about what uh, Mr. Yang is talking about, and you just actually mentioned it. Many Americans are worried that things like self-driving cars, robots, drones, artificial intelligence will cost them their jobs. What would you do to help people get the skills they need to adapt to this new world? We must always be a country where technology creates more jobs than it displaces. And I've seen the anxiety across America where the manufacturing floors go from 1,000 to 100 to 1. So we have to modernize our schools, value the teachers who prepare our kids, wipe the student debt from any teacher that goes into a community that needs it, invest in America's communities, especially where places where the best exports are people who move away to get skills. But Jose, I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, pass the torch. Vice President, would you like to sing a torch song? I would. (laughs) I'm still holding on to that torch. I want to make it clear to you, look, the fact of the matter is what we have to do is make sure that everybody is prepared better to go on to educate for an education. The fact is that that's why I propose us focusing on schools that are in distress. That's why I think we should triple the amount of money we spend for Title I schools. That's why I think we should have universal pre-K. That's why I think every single person who graduates from high school, 65 out of 100 now, need something beyond high school. And we should provide for them to be able to get that education. That's why there should be free community college, cutting in half the cost of college. That's why we should be in a position where we do not have anyone have to pay back a student debt when they get out. They're making less than $25,000 a year. Their debt is frozen, no interest payment until they get beyond that. We can't put people in a position where they aren't able to go on and move on. And so, folks, there's a lot we can do, but we have to make continuing education available for everyone so that everyone can compete in the 21st century. We're not doing that now. This was another case where I think somebody was they were going after somebody directly with an attack, consciously, obviously, and they were just extremely nervous to be doing that. So, right. Well, and also it's easy for him to say that he hasn't been, you know, chief executive like Buttigieg. He's a congressperson. And it's easy to throw darts from, you know, the other side. And obviously, you know, uh, de Blasio the first night threw some shade uh, Buttigieg's way. Obviously, he feels threatened by him because he's like, hey, I'm the biggest, you know, mayor of the biggest city in the country. Who's this yokel? (laughs) think he Mm -hmm. can come in. But uh, going back a little bit to the... uh, um, 
uh, Biden-Harris exchange, I did think uh, one thing you didn't mention that I thought was of note uh, is that Joe Biden, in his defense, and we were talking about Swalwell, too, when he was attacking Biden. You know, I feel like Biden swatted that away pretty quickly by saying, you know, I still have the torch. You know, he kind of, he kind <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he of had, he had, he had his line, you know, pretty well down for that. But uh, I, I went, almost, I almost yeah. wondered if like Biden has people inside the Swalwell camp who fed him that story. And he's like, they're going to make this attack on you during the debate. Just be <laughs> ready. And when he heard that attack coming, he's like, ah, there it is. Okay. I'm yeah, ready for this exactly. or something. But yeah, he was pretty, yeah. he seemed pretty prepared for it. But then when, uh, you know, like you said, he was, he did seem to be caught off guard by the, by the uh, Kamala Harris thing. And, uh, you know, when, when he was responding, he said, uh, what was it? Oh yeah. I, I left a big law firm to be a public defender. I wasn't a prosecutor. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that was an interesting little, little note there. He had. So. Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a totally wrong thing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Kamala Harris, you know, she was a prosecutor and mm-hmm. that was a that that has been an issue on the left wing. Like, why be a prosecutor? You know, you should be protecting people. You know, you can make the argument, oh, well, you're protecting the victims of crimes when you prosecute their, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I do think like, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the uh, a lot of the Democratic uh, politicians in in South Korea historically have been people who were public defenders or who, who were defense attorneys uh, during the uh, Bok Chung-hee dictatorship period. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that there is, you know, there's an argument. I don't know. Like, I'm, you know, there's a question. Like, if you're in the African-American community, how do you view prosecutors versus defense attorneys? I mean, mm-hmm. you may feel one way or the other about the quality of a particular defense attorney. But, like, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a I, – I don't think he – I don't think it was a – I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing to throw out there. But I don't think it was effective the way he hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. And and to be even more fair to Joe Biden in the 2019 context, if you're a, an elderly white man and you're being attacked by a middle aged black woman, what can you do but curl up in a ball and just like, you know, just take it? I mean, what could what, you know, on the social ju- on the social justice wing of the party? What could Joe Biden have done or said that would have right. nullified that attack? I mean, there's really I mean, can anybody think of anything, you know, I mean, even if whether the attack was justified or not, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it was I, I think, you know, you could make you said that maybe it was kind of she was kind of jumping in a different direction from, you know, what the question had been to to launch this kind of this angled attack at Joe Biden. But Let's be fair. He has made comments in the past couple of weeks about segregationists and working with them in a better time and all this kind of nostalgic crap about this stuff that made that that put the target on his back anyways. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think he, he's like an innocent babe in the woods who just got caught off guard with an unfair attack. I think he opened himself up to that by making those comments, let alone his potentially mm-hmm. his record there. So true. Yeah. Anyways. Wow. <laughs> so that was I mean, that was something I think I think in the since since this debate has happened, I think uh, Biden's numbers have dropped about 10 points at least. And I think Buttigieg has overtaken him in the fundraising for the quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is this is you, you almost can't overstate how damaging this was to Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. I think it revealed also maybe the softness of his support. 
perhaps you know he's had a he's had a big advantage with the African American community, and I think that that may be eroded by this as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, quite quite a moment. Yeah, and then Rachel Maddow, <laughs> you know, she said like after after Harris was finished, she said, uh, "Vice President Biden, you have been invoked. We are going to give you the chance to respond, Vice President Biden." And you could almost hear Biden saying, I don't want to let's let this go. Let's not let's not belabor this point. Just, she said what she wanted to say. Let's just leave the nice lady alone. <laughs> but but like, you know, Matt, I'll put him right there. And it is true. This is like the only time like that a person didn't try to go over their allotted speaking time. He's like he could not be finished soon enough. And he said, like, uh, I'm sorry, my time is over. Yeah. Or something like my my time is expired or whatever. Look, I'm going to so. respect the rules of the debate. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. That's a first. Yeah. Right. So, but you know, to be fair to him, I mean, you know, I would say anybody who, you know, is too critical of him, I'm, I think he deserves plenty of criticism. I don't think he should be the democratic nominee, but like, if you were in that scenario, you know, what would you have said? What's, what's the magic comeback to Kamala Harris that would have, you know, blunted that attack? I don't think there was one. Mm-mm. Um, at the same time, like, you know, you could argue, well, my record wouldn't have been like that if I were Joe Biden. And, you know, God bless. I, you know, I hope it wouldn't have been. But, you know, in that moment when you find yourself in that situation, you're being attacked by somebody. Yeah, it's 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 a mess. But she was extremely effective. She, you know, and she showed I think she showed something that that we want to see when she when she or maybe a Freudian slip there, not a Freudian slip, but like when somebody goes up against Donald Trump, we want to see somebody who can do a body blow like that to the person during the debate. Well, I mean, she's had that prosecutor training. She knows how to drill down on a point and, you know, kind of expose it to her ladies and gentlemen of the jury. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, she's got that, you know, she's got that tone and that rhythm down. And I think we've seen that in her Senate you know, questioning of uh, of people on, on the Judiciary Committee and other places. So. Yeah, yeah, it would be it is not something that I wouldn't want to see, you know, weaponized against Donald Trump. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. Did you have anything else on the race section or. All right. Uh, there was another section on partisanship and I just made a couple notes. Um, uh Bennett, like I said, was hard on Mitch McConnell, rightly so. President Obama promised in 2012 that after his re-election, Republicans would want to work with Democrats. Fever would break. That did not happen. Now Vice President Biden is saying the same thing, that if he is elected in 2020, both parties will want to work together. Should voters believe that somehow if there's a Democratic president in 2021, that gridlock is going to magically disappear? Gridlock will not magically disappear as long as Mitch McConnell is there first. Second, 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 that's why it is so important for us to win not just the presidency, to have somebody that can run in all 50 states, but to, to, but to win the Senate as well. And that's why we have to propose policies that can be supported, like Medicare X, so that we can build a broad coalition of Americans to overcome broken Washington, D.C. I agree with what Senator Gillibrand was saying. I share a lot of her views. We need to end gerrymandering in Washington. We need to end political gerrymandering in Washington. The court today said they couldn't do anything about it. We need to overturn Citizens United. The court was the one that gave us Citizens United. 
and the attack on voting rights in Shelby versus Holder is something we need to deal with. All of those things has happened since Senate, uh, Vice President Biden was in the Senate. And we face structural problems that we have to overcome with a broad coalition. It's the only way we can do it. We need to root out the corruption in Washington, expand okay. people's right to get to Time's the polls, up. and I think then we can succeed. Vice President Biden, uh, 30 seconds. I want I, I, what, um, it does sound as if you haven't seen what's been happening in the United States Senate over the last 12 years. It didn't happen. Why? I have seen what happened just since we were vice president. We needed three votes to pass an $800 billion recovery act that kept us from going into depression. I got three votes changed. We needed to be able to keep the government from shutting down and going bankrupt. I got Mitch McConnell to raise taxes $600 billion by raising the top rate. And as recently as after President uh, got elected. I was able to put together a coalition of the Cures Act that billions of dollars go into cancer research, bipartisan. But sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you just have to go out and beat them. I went into 20 states, over 60 candidates, okay, and guess what? We beat Chuck, them. We won Chuck, back the Chuck, Senate. Chuck, thank you. Chuck, thank you, the Mr. problem with what go the ahead, vice 30 president seconds. knows... Yeah, 30 seconds. Go ahead. We, sometimes you do have to beat him, but, but the deal that he talked about with Mitch McConnell was a complete victory for the Tea Party. It extended the Bush tax cuts permanently. The Democratic Party had been running against that for 10 years. We've lost that economic argument because that deal extended almost all those Bush tax cuts permanently and put in place the mindless cuts okay. that we still are dealing with today that are called the sequester. That was a great deal for Mitch McConnell. It was oh, a terrible God. deal for America. Thank you, Senator. But he also kind of hit Biden on that for, I think they said, like, you know, Bennett has called you naive for, you know, da 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 talking about bipartisanship in the current climate or something. And Joe Biden was visibly angry at Bennett when he was responding to that. And uh, uh, that was interesting. Um, Gillibrand wants clean, publicly funded elections. Okay. Uh, Sanders said, I do not believe in packing the court. Roe versus Wade has been the law of the land since 1973. Now that there is a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, several Republican-controlled states have passed laws to severely restrict or even ban abortion. One of those laws could very well make it to the Supreme Court during your presidency, if you're elected president. What is your plan if Roe is struck down in the court while you're president? Well, my plan is somebody who believes for a start that a woman's right to control her own body is a constitutional right that government and politicians should not infringe on that right. We will do everything we can to defend our Roe versus Wade. Second of all, let me make let me make let me make a promise here. You ask about litmus test. My litmus test is I will never appoint any nominate any justice to the Supreme Court unless that justice is 100% clear he or she will defend Roe v. Wade. Third of all, I do not believe in packing the court. We got a terrible 5-4 majority conservative court right now. But I do believe that constitutionally we have the power to rotate judges to other courts. And that brings in new blood into the Supreme Court and a majority, I hope, that will understand that a woman has the right to control her own body and that corporations 
cannot run uh, the Senator, United I'm States give of America. Hold on. I'm going to give you 10 additional seconds, because the question is, what if the court has already overturned Roe, and Roe is gone. All of the things you just described would be to try to preserve Roe. If Roe is gone, what could you do as president we to preserve pass, abortion rights? Well, first of all, let me tell you this. It didn't come up here, but let's face this. Medicare for all guarantees every woman in this country the right to have an abortion if she wants it. Thank you, Senator. Which, frankly, was a little bit disappointing. He was, mm -hmm. he was talking about something else about, like, rotating judges from the lower courts into the Supreme Court to, and yada, yada, yada. No judge he ever approved would be anybody who had any equivocation about Roe versus Wade, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I kind of want a court packer at this point. I don't think the, Democrat, the Republicans don't get to win, you know, after this mm -hmm. McConnell's bullshit and Trump's bullshit. So I, I'll be honest, you know, like I said, I'm I'm kind of a Bernie bro or whatever, but I was not wild about his answer there. So mm -hmm. credit where credit is not due. Mm -hmm. um, climate, climate came up. Harris had the line science fact versus science fiction. Donald Trump believes in science fiction. We're moving to climate, guys. Senator Harris, I'm addressing you first on this. You live in a state that has been hit by drought, wildfires, flooding, climate change is a major concern for voters in your state. It's pretty obvious, obviously this state as well. Yeah. Last night, voters heard many of the candidates weigh in on their proposals. Explain specifically what yours is. Well, first of all, I don't even call it climate change. It's a climate crisis. It represents an existential threat to us as a species. And the fact that we have a president of the United States who has embraced science fiction over science fact will be to our collective peril. I visited... While the embers were smoldering, the wildfires in California, I spoke with firefighters who were in the midst of fighting a fire while their own homes were burning. And on this issue, it is a, it is a critical issue that is about what we must do to confront what is immediate and before us right now. That is why I support a Green New Deal. It is why I believe on day one, and as president, will re-enter us in the Paris Agreement, because we have to take these issues seriously. And frankly, we have a president of the United States. We talked about, you asked before, what is the greatest national security threat to the United States? It's Donald Trump. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I agree, climate change represents an existential threat. He denies the science. You want to talk about North Korea? Real threat in terms of nuclear arsenal. But what does he do? He embraces Kim Jong-un, okay. a dictator for the sake of a photo op. Thank Putin. You want to talk about Senator Russia? Harris, we're going to he do takes more. the word of the Russian president to over the word of the American intelligence community when it comes to a threat to our Thank democracy you, and our elections. Thank you, Senator These Harris. These are the issues that are before us, Chuck. I'm, I hear you. Thank yes. you, Senator Harris. Mayor Buttigieg. In your climate plan, if you're elected president in your first term, how is this going to help farmers impacted by climate change in the Midwest? Well, the reality is we need to begin adapting right away, but we also can't skip a beat on preventing climate change from getting even worse. It's why we need aggressive and ambitious measures. It's why we need to do a carbon tax and dividend. But I would propose we do it in a way that is rebated out to the American people in a progressive fashion so that most Americans are made more than whole. This isn't theoretical for us in South Bend either. Parts of California on fire right here in Florida, they're talking about sea level rise. Well, in Indiana, I had to activate the emergency operations center of our city twice in less than two years. First time was a thousand year flood. 
and the next time was a 500-year flood. This is not just happening on the Arctic ice caps. This is happening in the middle of the country. And we've got to be dramatically more aggressive moving forward. Now, here's what very few people talk about. First of all, rural America can be part of the solution instead of being told they're part of the problem. With the right kind of soil management and other kind of investments, rural America could be a huge part of how we get this done. And secondly, we've got to look to the leadership of local communities. You know, there's networks of Thanks, mayors Mayor. and cities from around the world who have I'm come together. To I'm trying to Not even waiting for our national can. governments to catch up. We should have a Pittsburgh summit where we bring them together as well as rejoining the I, Paris. I, Thank you, Mayor Buttigieg. I want to bring Governor Hickenlooper into this for a moment. Governor, you have said that oil and gas companies should be a part of the solution on climate change. Lots of your colleagues on stage tonight have talked about moving away from fossil fuels entirely. Can oil and gas companies be real partners in this fight? Well, I share the sense of urgency. I'm, I'm a scientist, so I, I recognize that within 10 or 12 years of, of actually you know, suffering irre irreversible damage. Uh, but you know, guaranteeing everybody a government job is not gonna get us there. So, socialism, and in that sense, is not the solution. We have to look at what really will make a difference. In Colorado, we're closing a couple of coal plants, replacing them with wind, solar, and batteries, and the, and the monthly bills go down. We've gone on, we're building a, a network for electric vehicles. We are working with the oil and gas industry, and we've created the first methane regulations in the country. Methane is 25 times worse than CO2. And then we've got to get to that last part. I mean, the industrial heavy industry, we haven't seen the plans yet. If you look at at, at the real problem. CO2, the worst polluters in CO2 is China, is the United States, and then it's concrete in its exhalation. And beyond that, I think we've got to recognize that only by bringing people together, businesses, nonprofits, and we can't demonize every business. We've got to bring them together to be part of this thing because ultimately, Governor. if we're not able to do that, we will be doomed to failure. We have no way of doing this without Governor, bringing everyone together. Thank you. I, uh, Vice President Biden, on the issue of how you do this, Democrats are arguing robustly among themselves about what's the best way to tackle climate change. But if we're honest, many Republicans, including the president, are still not sure if they believe it is even a serious problem. So. Are there significant ways you can cut carbon emissions if you have to do it with no support from Congress? The answer is yes. Number one, media, when in our administration, we built the largest wind farm in the world, the largest solar energy facility in the world. We drove down the price, competitive price of both of those renewable, and renewable sources. I would immediately insist that we, in fact, build 500,000 recharging stations throughout the United States of America, working with governors, mayors, and others, so that we can go to a full electric vehicle future by the year 2020, or by the year 2030. I would make sure that we invested $400 million in new science and technology to be the exporter, not only of the green economy, but economy that can create millions of jobs. But I would immediately rejoin the Paris uh, Climate Accord. I would up the ante in that accord, which it calls for, because we make up 15% of the problem. 85% of the world makes up the rest. And so we have to have someone who knows how to corral the rest of the world, bring them together, and get something done like we did in our administration. Senator Sanders, I want to give you 30 Look. seconds to follow up, and I'm going to hold you to 30. Look, the old ways are no longer relevant. The scientists tell us we have 12 years before there is irreparable damage to this planet. This is a global issue. What the President of the United States should do is not deny the reality of climate change, 
but tell the rest of the world that instead of spending a trillion and a half dollars on weapons of destruction, let us get together for the common enemy, and that is to transform the world's energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Thank the future you. of the planet rests on us Here, doing this. Before, before we go, hang, hang on. A before we leave this topic. Wait, Here's wait, a solution. Pass oh. the torch. Pass the torch to the generation that's going to feel the effects no, take of climate change. The fossil Pass thank the you. torch to the generation the that's inventive enough. Thank you both. Before we leave this topic, here's something you will all want to weigh in on. Hold one moment. Hold one moment. Just trust us on this. somebody has a younger body doesn't mean you don't have old ideas. No, we didn't do John Kennedy, John Kennedy did not say, John Kennedy did not say, I'm, I have a plan to get a man to the moon, and so we're going to do it, and I think we can all work together, and maybe we can get a man on the moon. John Kennedy said, by the end of this decade, we are going to put a man on the moon. Because John Kennedy was back in the day when politics included the people, and included imagination, and included great dreams, and included great plans. Ms. And Williams. I Thank have you, had Ms. a career Williams. not making the political plans, but I have had a career harnessing the inspiration and the motivation and the excitement of people, Thank masses you, Ms. of people, when we know that when we say we are going to turn from a dirty economy Thank to a you. clean economy, we're going to have a Green New Deal. We're going to create millions of jobs. We're going to do this within the next 12 years because I'm not interested in just winning the next election. We are Thank interested you, in our grandchildren. All right, we got to sneak. We're going to sneak happen. in a break in a minute, but before we go, I'm going to go down the line here and I'm asking you, please, for one or two words only. All right, <laughs> please. Really? President Obama in his first year wanted to address both health care and climate, and he could only get one signature issue accomplished. It was obviously health care. He didn't get to do climate change. You may only get one shot and your first issue that you're going to push, you get one <coughs> shot that it may be the only thing you get past. What is that first issue for your presidency? Eric Swallow, you're first. For Parkland, for Orlando, for every community affected by gun violence, ending gun violence. Senator Bennett. <laughs> Climate change and the lack of economic mobility Bernie talks about. Senator Gillibrand. Passing a family bill of rights that includes a national paid leave plan, universal pre-K, affordable daycare, and making sure that women and Thank families you. can thrive in the workplace no matter right. who they are. Oh, I like hey, that. that okay. I'm, I'm, Senator I'm Harris. Said, so passing a middle class and working families tax cut, uh, That's one. DACA, okay. guns. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm giving you credit for the first thing you said, the tax cut. I, I got you. Like Senator cut. Sanders, first thing. The premise that there's only one or two issues out there. This I'm not country saying there's one or two. enormous crises. Senator we Sanders. a political revolution. People have got to stand okay. up and take on the special interests. We can transform this country. Fine. Uh, Vice President Biden, your first issue, Mr. Vice President. I think you're so underestimating what Barack Obama did. He's the first man to bring together the entire world, 196 nations, to commit to deal with climate change immediately. <laughs> So I, didn't, I don't buy that. But the first, the first thing I would do is make sure that we defeat Donald Trump. Okay. Period. Mayor Buttigieg, your first priority, your first issue as president that you were going to block and tackle. We've got to fix our democracy before it's too late. Get that right. Climate, immigration, taxes, and every other issue gets better. Mr. Mr. Yang. 
I would pass a $1,000 freedom dividend for every American adult starting at age 18, which would speed us up on climate change because if you get the boot off of people's throats, they'll okay. focus on climate change much more clearly. Governor Hickenlooper? I would do a collaborative approach to climate change, and I would pronounce it well before the election to make sure we don't re-elect the worst president in American history. And Ms. Williamson My with the last word. My first call is to Prime Minister of New Zealand, who said that her goal is to make New Zealand the place where it's the best place in the world for a child to grow up. And I will tell her girlfriend you are so on, because the United States of America is going Thanks. to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. Ms. Williamson, thank you. Hickenlooper said oil and gas companies should be part of the solution on climate change. What the fuck is this guy even doing in the race? Uh, <laughs> him, him and Delaney should form a support group of people that are their <laughs> only supporters are each other. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also, uh, a side note, I heard uh, Bill Maher called uh, on this show, he called Delaney Vice Principal Delaney, and it cracked me up. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's, there's too many people in this race, <laughs> right? So we saw them last night yep. and the night before. I think tonight uh, I'll give you veto rights, but I'm going to get rid of ten of them right now. Is that okay? Can we just <laughs> feel... Okay, and if you disagree, just say, but okay, this guy, Hickenlooper, nice guy... No, get out, okay? <laughs> nice guy, get the fuck out. Okay, uh, this is uh, Michael Bennett. You know, if you Google Michael Bennett... The first five that come up aren't even this guy. <laughs> Name Michael Bennett. Get the fuck out. Okay. Uh, oh, Vice Principal Delaney. Nice guy again. Another year. Get out. Uh, Tim Ryan. Uh, I think he said one good thing. No. Uh, I like him. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. Al Franken says hello. <laughs> Eric Swalwell. I like him, but, you know, too young. Looked like he was wearing a toupee last night. Get the fuck out. Marion Williamson. I, wait, wait, wait. wait. What? We need no. to get... No. She was never supposed to be there. Who? Uh, that the crazy Williams. hippie lady. Yeah, no. <laughs> I heard that there were too many Democrats. She snuck through security. She got herself on stage. And Rachel Maddow okay. was just too overwhelmed and didn't notice. Okay. Uh, she said a great thing about health care that I'm going to try to read after the show. I mean, during the show. But uh, Andrew Yang, really smart guy. Wrong business. <laughs> You're in the wrong business. Beto, I like Beto a lot. Oh. I talked to him for a... You want you, Pastor Beto. You want you want him still in? Well, Should I? My, he reminds my daughter of a youth pastor. So I feel badly. To we can have the Beto. picture. Okay, but he, but he's, not, he's not he's not doing good. He's not looking it's good. Not going it, come, well. It's not going it's well. It's not going well. And this no. guy oh. starts spreading the news. Okay. <laughs> you are leaving today. Okay. All right. So now we got it down to ten, right? Okay. 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 Yeah, yeah, that, that I could I could see that. Yeah, I, I will say it's it's interesting. Like sometimes, like Bill Maher, like there are people he's had on his show and he's had them sit down in the chair opposite him or whatever, and doesn't done the interview and stuff. And you know, when you do that, you're lending some credence to that person's uh, you know candidacy or whatever. And and I've heard him come back and criticize people that he's even sat down with on the show later. And so I, you know, a little bit of credit there that. Yeah, it's it's probably not easy when you've interviewed somebody and you've been face to face with them and given them your kind of imprimatur. Is that is that a word? Mm, I don't know that vocabulary word there. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's, Bob, that's why I'm an English teacher. <laughs> so, imprimatur, something like that. It's kind of like similar to endorsement or your support or your tacit mm -hmm. support or something. Goodness. I don't know. We'll have to. Yeah, we'll have to edit that in post if it's not what it means. But I think it's something like that. 
Hmm. Uh, um, I think, wasn't there, like, back in university, wasn't there a word that I used one time that we both didn't know if it was a real word? And we looked it up, and it I think it was, like, brusque or something. I said, he has a brusque manner oh, or yeah, something. Or like, and we were like, does that was that a real word? And I was like, I don't even know. We looked it up, <laughs> yeah. and sure enough, it was. And it, like, yes. it basically meant exactly what I meant it to mean. And I was like, oh, yep. okay, cool. I'm still good here. High five. <laughs> Smarter than I thought five minutes ago. Context clues. <laughs> yeah. Um, Swalwell did his pass the torch thing. He tried to get that going again, I think. Um, Bernie said, uh, lead the world to less weapons spending, shift to technology or something to fight the climate stuff. Interesting. I mean, it might be naive for another candidate to say something like we need to lead the world to reduce weapons, like after the cold war, the nuclear proliferation, all that stuff. But actually, if there was a, if there was a presidential candidate who could do it, it would probably be Bernie. I mean, with a lot Mm -hmm. of countries, um, you know, I, I think he would have credibility on the world stage as somebody who's actually going to reduce American weapons, you know, stockpiles or production, not somebody who's just going to say that to get other countries to give up, disarm voluntarily, unilaterally or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I also think that if Bernie was elected after a Donald Trump, I think he would have so much credibility with the rest of the world going into his presidency that some some countries might sign on for something just like that as a sign of goodwill or something or relief. Mm. So, um, let's see. They had a question of the first issue of your presidency. Swalwell said ending gun violence. Bennett said climate change, uh, economic mobility. Gillibrand said a family bill of rights. I don't mm-hmm. know what the fuck that means. Um, Harris said a middle class tax cut. Really? Are we Republicans? We're talking about tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, guns. She also said guns um, and and uh, DACA. She tried to sneak three in there. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> Sanders said a political revolution. Um, I don't know what that means as your first issue of your presidency. You know, I think they're talking about legislation, but I guess the argument could be made that you need to, you know, maintain the political revolution to maintain pressure on Congress and the Senate to get things done which mm-hmm. a lot of them are going to be disinclined to do naturally for partisan reasons. Um, Biden said defeat Donald Trump, which I don't know. I think some people dinged him on that and said, that's not your first legislation, which is true. But I do think it should be a primary thing we're all thinking about. But yeah, after you're elected, <laughs> Buttigieg said fix democracy. Okay. Yang said the the freedom dividend Again, on day one, that's your that's your number. I know it's your one issue, but on day one, I, I you know I think you've got to undo something that Donald Trump did. I don't think you've got to talk about the freedom di- dividend right away. Mm. Hickenlooper said climate change. Okay, yeah, credit where credit is due. William said, call the New Zealand Prime Minister. She said that she wants to make New Zealand the best place in the world for children. And I'm going to say, girlfriend, you are so on because we are going to make America the best place to raise a child or something. I was like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) what in God's name? (laughs) This is your day one. This is your day one. (laughs) Number one, it, it seems wildly aggressive towards a country that just recently had their first racially motivated mass shooting. I mean. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you're basically you saying wanna, you think you, you can beat America you them. can't you're still the best I know you're it's trying to heal but girlfriend yeah I know about healing I've done some yeah 
I've got these essential crystals. oils. Yeah, we, we got some tantric healing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We're being wildly unfair to her, but it's it's weird. Um, she made it weird. Uh, she did make it weird. Yeah, it's she her speaking tone. Some people described it as the mid Atlantic accent, and I heard maybe hints of that, but. It was something else. I don't know where she's from. I don't know, you know, what her upbringing or background is, but it was weird. Like the the thing she said, chose to say, the cadence in which she spoke, her tone. I mean, her focus. I don't know. Like I said, I think I heard an interview with her a few weeks ago, and she said some things on foreign policy that made a lot of sense. But I don't know. It's not going to happen. <laughs> And things like attacking, not even attacking, but like kind of a friendly competition with the prime minister of New Zealand is just interesting. <laughs> yes. La- later, we've got a, I've got a very extended quote from her, which was amazing as well. Kind of her closing statement, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the next issue is guns. And this is really not in any particular order. I've probably already messed up the order, but. Congressman Swalwell. Among this field of candidates, you have a unique position on gun reform. You're proposing that the government should buy back every assault weapon in America, and it should be mandatory. How do you envision that working, especially in states where gun rights are a strong flashpoint? Keep your pistols, keep your rifles, keep your shotguns, but we can take the most dangerous weapons from the most dangerous people. We have the NRA on the ropes because of the moms, because of the Brady Group, because of Giffords, because of March for Our Lives. But I'm the only candidate on this stage calling for a ban and buyback of every single assault weapon in America. I've seen the plans of the other candidates here. They would all leave 15 million assault weapons in our communities. They wouldn't do a single thing to save a single life in Parkland. I'll approach this issue as a prosecutor. I'll approach it as the only person on this stage who has voted and passed background checks, but also as a parent of a generation who sends our children to school where we look at what they're wearing so we can remember it in case we have to identify them later. A generation who has seen thousands of black children killed in our streets, and a generation who goes to the theater and we actually look where the fire exits are. We don't have to live this way. We must be a country who loves our children more than we love our guns. Senator Sanders, a Vermont newspaper. Senator Sanders, a Vermont newspaper recently released portions of an interview you gave in 2013 in which you said, quote, my own view on guns is everything being equal, states should make those decisions. No. Has your thinking changed since then? Do you now think there's a federal role to play? That's a mischaracterization of my thinking. Look, we have a gun gun crisis right now. 40,000 people a year are getting killed. In 1988, Rachel, when it wasn't popular, I ran on a platform of banning assault weapons and, in fact, lost that race for Congress. I have a D-minus voting record from the NRA. And I believe that what we need is comprehensive gun gun, uh, legislation that, among other things, provides universal background. We end the gun show loophole. We end the straw man provision. And I believed in 1988, and I believe today. Why would you that assault why would you weapons, assault weapons, assault weapons are Senator, weapons you leave are from the military, 
and that they should not be on the streets leave? of America. You would leave, your plan leaves them on the streets. You leave 15 million on we the streets. We banned the sale, and we banned the sale will and you distribution, buy and that's what I believe will for you, many years. Will you buy them back? If people want to buy, if the government wants to do that, if people want to You're going to be the back, government, yes. will you buy them back? Yes. Senator Harris, we're going to give you 30 seconds. Thank you. I think your idea is a great one, Congressman Swalwell, and I will say that there are a lot of great ideas. The problem is Congress has not had the courage to act, which is why when elected president of the United States, I will give the United States Congress 100 days to pull their act together, bring all these good ideas together, and put a bill on my desk for signature. And if they do not, I will take executive action, and I will put in place the most comprehensive background check policy we've had. I will require the ATF to take the licenses of gun dealers who violate the law, and I will ban by executive order the importation of assault weapons, because I'm going to tell you, as a prosecutor, I have seen more autopsy photographs than I care to tell you. I have hugged more mothers who are the mothers of homicide victims, and I have attended more police officer funerals. It is enough. It is enough. There have been plenty of good ideas for members of the United States Congress. There's been no action. As president, I will take action. Mayor Buttigieg, I want to bring you in on this, sir. A lot of discussion about assault rifles that are often shorthanded as military-style weapons. You are the only person on this stage tonight with military experience as a veteran of the Afghanistan war. Will military families... Does that inform your thinking on this view? Do you believe that military families or America's veterans will, in, at large, have a, t a different take on this than the other Americans who we've been talking about and who Congressman Swalwell is appealing to with his buyback program? Yeah, of course, because we trained on some of these kinds of weapons. Look, every part of my life experience informs this. Being the mayor of a city where the worst part of the job is dealing with violence, we, we lose a, as many as were lost at Parkland every two or three years in my city alone. And this is tearing communities apart. If more guns made us safer, we'd be the safest country on earth. It doesn't work that way. And common sense measures like universal background checks can't seem to get delivered by Washington, even when most Republicans, let alone most Americans, agree it's the right thing to do. And as somebody who trained on weapons of war, I can tell you that there are weapons that have absolutely no place in American cities or neighborhoods in peacetime, ever. Vice President Biden, 30 seconds. A real 30 seconds? A real 30 seconds. Okay. I'm the only person that's beaten the NRA nationally. I'm the guy that got the Brady Bill passed, the background checks, number one. Number two, we increased that background check when, uh, during the Obama-Biden administration. I'm also the only guy that got assault weapons banned banned, and the number of clips in a gun, banned. And so, folks, look, and I would buy back those weapons. We already started talking about that. We tried to get it done. I think it can be done, and it should be demanded that we do it, and that's a good expenditure money. And lastly, we should have smart guns. No gun should be able to be sold unless your biometric measure could pull that trigger. It's within our right to do that. We can do that. Our enemy is the gun manufacturers, not the NRA. The gun manufacturer. Vice President, but the NRA is taking orders right. from the gun manufacturer. Uh, Swalwell wants, he's, he's, you know, this is, you know, th this is the drone the NRA was looking for, right? <laughs> he wants mandatory assault rifle ban. Uh, NRA, NRA is on the ropes right now, so ban, uh, ban assault rifles, uh, forced buybacks of all assault rifles, and then a ban on future sales, which is, you know, it's, I'm, you know, it, it may be justified, but it's an extreme position, right? Mm-hmm. 
So that was interesting. Um, Sanders, Bernie Sanders said, just ban assault weapons sales. Swalwell tried to hit him and say, well, you still got 15 million assault weapons that are out there. And I, I don't know. I can see the logic in Sanders' approach. I mean, the thing is, like, I mean, there's so little logic on the gun issue. Like people say, well, what are you going to do? The criminals have already got the guns. And so we need to be able to still buy guns to fight the criminals. It's like, how do the criminals get the guns? People sell them to them in, you know, personal sales. They get stolen, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever happens. It's, it's, you know, I don't know what, 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 if you're like, if, if water is pouring into your living room from the upstairs bath, bathtub, the first step is not to caulk the ceiling. It's to turn off the bathtub to stop the flow of water. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that, I mean, that this is just a very spur of the moment metaphor, but it's like at some point you, you've got to turn off the source and then you can, and, and then if the shootings continue to happen with the mm-hmm. guns that are already out there, then you can look at further steps. But I, I think jumping to recall buyback mandatory force, the government's eventually going to come for your guns. I think that is a political, that that's going to make a four year president, not an eight year president. Right. If you're talking mm-hmm. about that kind of thing. So yeah. I don't know. I'm just well, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting with Bernie and guns. Cause I feel like people from the left hit him on being too conservative about guns. And then I feel like people on the conservative side feel like he's too liberal. So I feel like he gets it both ways on that issue, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think we may have talked about before. I just think that there's just a different, to some degree, there's just a different conception of guns in the city versus in the countryside. And there's different usages of guns in those two places. There's different consequences often in those places. Um, I don't know. And and you can say, well, maybe there should just be some different rules. If you live in a rural state and you don't live in the city, you can have all these guns. But if you live in the city, you can't. But, but the thing is, you know, you can't have a gun-free zone. If somebody can buy a gun in Indiana, they can walk into downtown Chicago and shoot somebody with it. Or right, sell that's it what somebody I was going to say. Will. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the, you know, we we're, we are living in two Americas on this issue to some degree, but but there's no way to separate them. You know, there's just no way to, you know, mm-hmm. what for better or worse, whatever rule we're going to pass nationwide or state by state is is going to effectively be a nationwide rule. Mm-hmm. Either that or it's going to be ineffective. So, yeah. Um, Harris had an interesting thing on guns. She said she's going to give Congress 100 days to put a bill on guns forward or else she's going to do a, a, a executive exe- uh, executive action to ban the Im- import of assault weapons. I'm like, ban the import of assault weapons. Like, okay, I mean, that sounds good. I, I feel like a lot of candidates get away with saying something that sounds good if you don't think about it. I'm like, okay, well, what percentage of the assault weapons specifically that are sold in America are imported versus pro- domestically produced? Because if you're, you know, if you're not going to ban the domestic production of assault weapons for sale within the United States, then, you know, you, you're basically doing a protectionist action to protect American gun makers, which, you know, I don't know. I don't think that that's what American voters on the Democratic Party are looking for in this answer. But saying talk about the the ban import of assault weapons sounds good. But when you really think about it, like, what does that actually mean? Does that actually stop the problem or is that kind of like a, a half measure, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they asked, uh, somebody said, uh, Biden, 30 seconds. He says, a real 30 seconds. They said, yeah. And they said, okay. (laughs) Uh, he said, assault weapons, buyback program, maybe not mandatory and smart guns. Interesting. Okay. 
Bennett said, restore democracy, fix allies' relationships. I don't know. I don't know if that really has to do with guns. Maybe that was another issue, or maybe he was just way off topic. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Uh, reset a relationship. This is kind of an interesting question. If you could reset one relationship, which relationship would you want to reset? Uh, Williamson said European leadership. What did she say? She said, we're back or something. Hickenlooper said China. Yang said China and North Korea. He tried to sneak two in. Uh, Buttigieg had, a, I thought, one of the most interesting answers. He says, we have no idea which of our most important allies he will have pissed off worse between now and then. <laughs> so he's kind of, it, was, it was a good answer. It's like we may have to, you know, he's definitely already pissed off a lot of people, but we may have to mitigate our answer depending on who he's pissed off most recently before the next Democrat becomes president. All right, Chuck, this is a question uh, from our viewers. We put some uh, suggestions that ask maybe they could share some. Here's one that came from Kathleen from Canby, Oregon, who writes, many fear the current administration has inflicted irrevocable harm on our governing institutions and norms and in the process on our reputation abroad. The question is, what do you see as important early steps in reversing the damage done? And we'll put this one to Senator Bennett. Thank you very much. What an excellent question. First of all, we have to restore uh, our democracy at home. The rest of the world is looking for us for leadership. We have a president who doesn't believe in the rule of law. He doesn't believe in freedom of the press. He doesn't believe in independent judiciary. He believes in the corruption that he's brought to Washington, D.C. And that is what we have to change. And that's why everybody is up here tonight. And I appreciate the fact that they're up here for that reason. Second, we've got we've to restore the relationships that he's destroyed with our allies. Not just in Europe, he flew to the G20 last night and attacked Japan, Germany, and a third ally of ours without saying anything about North Korea or Russia. And when you've got a situation where you have a president who says something happened in the Straits of Hormuz and the whole world doesn't know whether to believe it or not, that is a huge problem when it comes to the national security of the United is, States of America. This is a perfect and we time. Need to change that. Thank you, Senator. That is a perfect time for me to do another one of these down the line. And this is what this question is, which is, you're going to have to re. You're likely going to have to reset a relationship between America and, an, and another country or entity if you become president, because of perhaps because of some relationship that you just mentioned about President Trump. What is the first relationship you like to reset as president? I'm going to go down the line, and I'll start with Ms. Williamson. Well, one of my first phone calls would be to call the European leaders and say, we're back, because I totally Thank understand you. how important it is that the United States be part of the okay. Western alliance. I want, I'm trying to get one, one or two words here. It's, I, I, I hear you. Governor Hickenlooper. You know, I talk about constant engagement, and I think <laughs> the, first person, the first country I would go to, yeah. and I understand they've been cheating and, yeah. and stealing intellectual property, would be China, because okay. if we're going to do, deal with Mr. public health, pandemics and we're going Thank to do with all the challenges of the globe, we've got to have relationships with everyone. Mr. Yang, we're trying to squeeze in a couple more things before we go to another break. Mr. Yang. China, we need to cooperate with them on climate change, AI, and other uh, issues. North Korea. Thanks for the quickness. Mayor Buttigieg. We have no idea which of our most important allies he will have pissed off worse between now and then. What we know is that our relationship with the entire world needs to change. And it starts by modeling American values at home. Okay, Mr. Vice President, I'm trying to be quick. We know NATO will fall apart if he's elected four more years as the single most consequential alliance okay. in the history of the United States. Senator Sanders. It's not one country. I think it is rebuilding trust in the United Nations and understand okay. that we can solve Got conflicts it. without war but with diplomacy. Senator Harris. 
all the members of the NATO alliance. Senator Gillibrand. President Trump is hell-bent on starting a war with Iran. My first act Iran. will be to engage Iran to stabilize the Middle East and make sure we do not Thank start you. an unwanted, never-ending war. Senator Bennett, quickly. Our European allies in every Latin American country that's willing to have a conversation okay. about how to deal with the refugee crisis. And Congressman Swalwell. My first act in foreign policy, we're breaking up with Russia and making up with NATO. Right. Biden, yeah, Biden said NATO. Sanders said the United Nations. Harris said NATO. Gillibrand said Iran, which is um, probably a good answer, I think. Um, try to fix that relationship to the point at least it was under Obama. Although I think, you know, Russia is the real issue. Um, Bennett said Europe, Latin America, that will, parts of Latin America that want to help us reduce the flow of immigrants. Um, okay. Again, Bennett seems to have a little bit of a kind of a right wing, like a very centrist right wing democratic approach, yeah. I guess. Seems to be his line. Yeah. Swalwell, we're breaking up with Russia and we're making up with NATO. And Bennett said, ooh, that's a good play when he said that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Swalwell, you know, to give the guy credit, he tried to make the most of his time that he had speaking, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't always effective, but sometimes he got a little line in like that that was not bad. So, cool. Yeah, I think in, you know, a couple of elections down the road, I don't think he, you count him out. You know, he might be back. So... Yeah, I don't young, know. Young guy, he's in his thirties, so. I don't know. I could I, if he if he stays in like Congress or the Senate for twenty or thirty years and he develops a little bit more gravitas, I guess. Mm -hmm. I could I could see it. I don't know. I don't see him on the national stage necessarily. Maybe I don't know. I, I, it's hard to hard to imagine. Hard to see. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to see now that he's dropped out. Mm -hmm. Um. They had uh, closing statements, finally, I guess, is the last thing to come to. We are back from Miami. Now, each candidate will have a final chance to make their case to the voters. 45 seconds each. We begin with Congressman Swalwell. We can't be a forward-looking party if we look to the past for our leadership. I'm a congressman, but also a father of a two-year-old and an infant. When I'm not changing diapers, I'm changing Washington. Most of the time, the diapers smell better. I went to Congress at 31, and I found a Washington that doesn't work for people like you and me. It's made of the rich and the disconnected. I was the first in my family to go to college and have student loan debt. And so I have led the effort to elect the next generation of members of Congress, and we have a moment to seize. This is a can-do generation. This is the generation that will end climate chaos. This is the generation that will solve student loan debt. And this is the generation that will say enough is enough and end gun violence. This generation demands bold solutions. That's why I'm running for president. Congressman, thank you. Ms. Williamson, 45 seconds to your closing I'm statement. sorry we haven't talked more tonight about how we're going to beat Donald Trump. I have an idea about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not going to be beaten just by insider politics talk. He's not going to be beaten just by somebody who has plans. He's going to be beaten by somebody who has an idea what this man has done. This man has reached into the psyche of the American people, and he has harnessed fear for political purposes. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me, please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes, and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field, and, sir, love will win. Ms. Williamson, thank you. Senator Bennett. Thank you. Thank you. My mom and her parents 
came to the United States to rebuild their shattered lives Three, in the only country that they could. 300 years before that, my parents' family came searching religious freedom here. The ability for one generation to do better than the next is now severely at risk in the United States, especially among children living in poverty like the ones I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools. That's why I'm running for president. I've had two tough races in Colorado uh, by bringing people together, not by making empty promises. Uh, and I believe we need to build a broad coalition of Americans to beat Donald Trump and the corruption in Washington and build a new era of of American democracy and American opportunity. This is going to be hard to do, but it's what our parents would have expected. It's what our kids deserve. I hope you'll join me in this effort. Thank you. Thank you. Governor Hickenlooper. I'm a small business owner who brought that same scrappy spirit to make Colorado one of the most progressive states in America. We expanded reproductive health to to reduce teenage abortion by 64%. We were the first state to legalize marijuana, and we transformed our justice system in the process. We passed universal background checks in a purple state. We got to near universal health care coverage. We attacked climate change with the toughest methane regulations in the country, and for the last three years, we've been the number one economy in America. You don't need big government to do big things. I know that because I'm the one person up here who's actually done the big progressive things everyone else is talking about. If we turn towards socialism, we run the risk of helping to reelect the worst president in American history. Thank you, Governor. Senator Gilbrand, you have the floor for 45 seconds. Women in America, women in America are on fire. We've marched, we've organized, we've run for office, and we've won. But our rights are under attack like never before by President Trump and the Republicans who want to repeal Roe v. Wade, which is why I went to the front lines in Georgia to fight for them. As president, I will take on the fights that no one else will. I stood up to the Pentagon and repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I've stood up to the banks and voted against the bailout twice. I've stood up to Trump more than any other senator in the U.S. Senate, and I have the most comprehensive approach for getting money out of politics with publicly funded elections to deal with political corruption. Now is not the time to play it safe. Now is not the time to be afraid of firsts. We need a president who will take on the big challenges, even if she stands alone. Join me in fighting for this. Senator Gillibrand, thank you. Mr. Yang, you have 45 seconds for your closing. First, I want to thank everyone who put me on this stage tonight. I am proof that our democracy still works. Democrats and Americans around the country have one question for their nominee, and that is who can beat Donald Trump in 2020? That is the right question. And the right candidate to beat Donald Trump will be solving the problems that got Donald Trump elected and will have a vision of a trickle-up economy that is already drawing thousands of disaffected Trump voters, conservatives, independents, and libertarians, as well as Democrats and progressives. I am that candidate. I can build a much broader coalition to beat Donald Trump. It is not left. It is not right. It is forward. And that is where I'll take the country in 2020. Mr. Yang, thank you. Senator Harris. Senator Harris, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, I just want to leave you with a couple of things. Um, one, we need a nominee uh, who has the ability to prosecute the case against four more years of Donald Trump, and I will do that. Second, this election is about you. This is about your hopes and your dreams and your fears and what wakes you up at 3 o'clock in the morning. 
And that's why I have what I call a 3 a.m. agenda. That is about everything from what we need to do to deliver health care to how you will be able to pay the bills by the end of the month. And when I think about what our country needs, I promise you I will be a president who leads with a sense of dignity, with honesty, speaking the truth, and giving the American family all that they need to get through the end of the month in a way that allows them to prosper. So I hope to earn your support. Uh, please join us at KamalaHarris.org. Senator, thank you. <laughs> Mayor Buttigieg, 45 seconds. Nothing about politics is theoretical for me. I've had the experience of writing a letter to my family, putting it in an envelope marked just in case, and leaving it where they would know where to find it in case I didn't come back from Afghanistan. I have the experience of being in a marriage that exists by the grace of a single vote on the US Supreme Court. I have the experience of guiding a community where the per capita income was below $20,000 when I took office into a brighter future. I'm running because the decisions we make in the next three or four years are going to decide how the next 30 or 40 go. And when I get to the current age of the current president in the year 2055, I want to be able to look back on these years and say my generation delivered climate solutions, racial equality, and an end to endless war. Help me deliver that new generation to Washington before it's too late. Thank you. <laughs> Senator Sanders, 45 seconds to close here. I suspect people all over the country who are watching this debate are saying, these are good people, they have great ideas. But how come nothing really changes? How come for the last 45 years wages have been stagnant for the middle class? How come we have the highest rate of childhood poverty? How come 45 million people still have student debt? How come three people own more wealth than the bottom half of America? And here is the answer. Nothing will change unless we have the guts to take on Wall Street, the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the military-industrial complex, and the fossil fuel industry. If we don't have the guts to take them on, we'll continue to have plans, we'll continue to have talk, and the rich will get richer, and everybody else will be struggling. Thank you, Senator. We'll hear from Vice President Biden. Sir, you have 45 seconds. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm ready to lead this country because I think it's important we restore the soul of this nation. This president has ripped it out. It's the only president in our history who has equated racist and, 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 and white supremacist with ordinary and decent people. He's the only president who has act, engaged and embraced dictators and thumbed her nose at, at our allies. I'm secondly running for president because I think we have to restore the backbone of America the poor and hardworking middle-class people. You can't do that without replacing them with the dignity they once had. Lastly, we've got to unite the United States of America as much as anybody says we can. If we do, there's not a single thing the American people can't do. This is the United States of America. We can do anything if we're together, together. So God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Um, Swalwell talked about generational change, uh, bold solutions. Okay, whatever that means. Um, let's see. Uh, Bennett talked about American opportunity. Okay. Hickenlooper, I'm a small business owner. I've reduced teen abortion in my state. We were the first ones to legalize marijuana. Uh, and turning towards socialism will reelect Donald Trump. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Bye bye, Hickenlooper. Good luck. <laughs> Gillibrand said, "Women in America are on fire." At first, I thought she was saying it was a bad thing, but I think she meant it was a good thing. But then also, <laughs> <laughs> under threat. I think literally both of them would be true. Well, I mean, you know, figuratively, either one of them could be applicable, really. So. Hmm. Harris said she's going to prosecute the case against four more years of Donald Trump. Um, Buttigieg's generational change, basically. Sanders, uh, nothing will change unless we have the guts to take on the choose your poison, the usual bad guys, right? The you know the military industrial complex, the big banks, the Wall Streets, the up you know the the one percent, etc. Um, Biden, I didn't really know what his closing statement was about. It was not. It didn't really make an impression one way or the other on me. Mm-hmm. Yang talked about we can beat Trump, which is, I think, the right who can beat Trump, which is the right question. Um, talked about a trickle up economy. Um, another thing I have a problem with about his again, it's kind of an aside here is that he's talking about giving everybody a thousand dollars, but collecting more money through taxes through a value added tax, which, from my understanding, is usually a pretty regressive tax that, you know, because everybody who consumes things has to pay it, you know, and everybody, not just rich people, is consuming things. And so everybody is paying it at an equal rate. And, you know, when poor people are paying taxes at an equal rate to rich people, uh, it generally doesn't, you know, you know, you say, well, right now, poor people don't have to pay anything, but rich people have to pay 20 percent or something. It's like mm-hmm. we should make everybody pay 20 percent. OK, well. You know, if, if you're getting, you know, $20,000 a year and you take 20% of that, you're taking $2,000 out of somebody's mouth for a year. That's a huge effect. You know, I'm just well, saying. I, like, I think it's, it's 4000 in that case, but yes. Yeah, so oh, okay. Yeah. That's, I, I didn't major in math, Bob. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, but, but it even it supports your case even more because it's an even bigger bite of their, you know, total. So. Yeah, I'll take it then. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I, I, that's another issue I have with his, his thing is like, okay, we're going to pay for it through higher taxes. Again, that's, that's another case I think where inflation can creep in potentially, you know, uh, oh, you have more money, but we're going to slightly raise the price on things so that we collect more taxes from everybody who buys anything. And also it's, he's saying, well, rich people will buy more things. So they'll be paying a higher tax rate. And it's like, no, they may not. They may be putting their money in the bank and just letting it sit there investing it somewhere they may not be paying these value added tax at all with the extra thousand dollars whereas somebody who has to go down to the store and buy groceries to put you know put groceries in the mouths of his family put food on their family you're working hard to put food on your family yeah i was i was searching for somebody's malapropism like that uh, to to stick in there um yeah they're going to be paying more value added taxes i imagine so Things like toll roads, things like value-added taxes, these are things that I just – I'm not wild about. So, But anyways, yeah, he talks about um, the trickle-up economy through that – through his thing and um, uh, drawing conservatives, disaffected Trump's voters, independents, libertarians, as well as Democrats and progressives, a broad coalition. I don't think he's totally wrong there. I think he would draw a small percentage of many – every single one of these groups potentially if he ran, but mm-hmm. – and I think there's an argument that any Democrat could win against Donald Trump this time, potentially. Um, but I don't think he's the one. Mm-hmm. And finally, we come to to uh, to Marianne Williamson's closing statement, which was not the final statement, but I've saved the best for last. <laughs> 
and you can you can edit out my reading of this because she does it so much better than I ever could. So just drop her audio in here. But she says, I'm sorry we haven't talked more tonight, which I, I'm sure was directed against Maddow and uh, and uh, and uh, Chuck Todd there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry we haven't talked more tonight about how we're going to beat Donald Trump. He has reached deep into the psyche of the American people and he has harnessed fear for political purposes. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I want to I want you to hear me, please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes and only love can cast this out. So I so, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field and, sir, love will win. (laughs) That's that's an excellent speech for something. I don't know if it's for the Democratic (laughs) candidacy for president, but that's a hell of a, you know, in a a 1980s, like kind of children's fantasy movie or something. That's a hell of a speech. Yeah. So I'm ready. I'm ready to give her uh, all my business for essential oils. That's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All my essential oil needs can be met by her, which is admittedly currently very minimal (laughs) (laughs) but yeah (laughs) so but yeah that's uh you know i don't know who knows maybe she'll do well and you know in november we will meet donald trump on that field right (laughs) we will see so yeah that that pretty much concludes my notes on the debate though but yeah i think obviously the the race issue with biden and harris was the the big that was the big moment that was what that was where we got our got our money's worth for this thing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm interested to see the next round of uh, debates here. I believe that I looked it up and only 14 of them had made the cut. Uh, so okay. I don't know if they're going to go seven and seven or, or what. I believe it's on CNN, I think, is the next one. So I think uh, Don Lemon and uh, Jake Tapper and them are going to get their shot next. Uh, okay. But, yeah, what I'm really looking forward to is when we get it down to one stage and stop having these, you know, bifurcated kitty table, you know, big boy table, uh, you know, uh divisions here uh i'd like to see them all mix it up because there's some from one i would like to see and mix it up with another and so yeah mm-hmm. i would like to see it all kind of happen at the same time so yeah and I, I think there were certain people like biden and uh bernie who basically just kind of kept each other's names out of their mouths right like mm-hmm. i mean even though they were on the same stage even though they're both went into this debate as kind of front runners within the party they were you know they were very careful not to not to directly challenge each other. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I think probably that's a smart thing, because I think that they do both have to worry about alienating each other's voters. So, yeah, and I, I, th- I would like to see de Blasio and Buttigieg on the same stage because I feel like we'd see some fireworks there. So, yeah. And I was going to mention earlier when you mentioned that that de Blasio was kind of, you know, against the Buttigieg in a way. Uh, I was thinking, like, I mean, because, you know, uh, Swalwell had said you should fire your police chief to Buttigieg and stuff. Uh-huh. I, I think I remember something a couple of years ago about about de Blasio having some issues with his police unions in New York City. Oh, yeah. NYPD. So, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, the NYPD, I forget if it was the FOP or whoever had their shirts made up that said, I can breathe, you know. So, I mean, there's <laughs> been some, you know, problematic things in the NYPD in the past, obviously. So I don't think his hands are totally clean there. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it's well, it's exciting to see where the debates are going to go in the future. I I hope we can get away from 
a little bit of the, you know, the kind of speechifying and the speech making and the, you know, just basically stating their plans or if they're stating their plans, I hope that they'll state their plans in a way that is clear, concise, not not trying to hide the ball, you know, like some of them I feel like did. Uh, and but, I you know, I think in the future we're going to have more, you know, back and forth more. You know, what's the news of the day? Who said the stupid thing recently? I think mm-hmm. those things will all be things we can watch for in future debates. Oh, for sure. So but we lost Swalwell today. Who do you think is the next one to drop out? Uh, I hope Delaney. <laughs> yeah, from the first uh, debate. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Uh, we can lose uh, Delaney. I'd like to see Bennett, Ryan, Hickenlooper. Those can all can just leave. I don't know who's supporting them or why. Uh, I think there's some others that are probably going to take longer to fall off. But, you know, honestly, I think we can probably lose Gillibrand. Uh, I can pr- you know, I, th- I think we can probably lose Klobuchar eventually, but it'll take a long time. I, I just want to see it get down to brass tacks. There's only about a half a dozen who have a real shot, and I think everybody knows it. It's it's probably what Warren, Biden, Harris, uh, uh, Sanders. you know, Sanders, and Buttigieg. And I don't, yeah, who else am I missing? Anybody? I, I think that's pretty much it for me. I'm trying to think about it, yeah, it's it's really really hard to come up with anybody else. I mean, a few months ago, you could have said, you know, what's his name? Other Texas guy. Oh, Beto. Beto. Or you could say you could say maybe, uh, oh, God, New Jersey. Chris Christie. I'm kidding. (laughs) 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 Booker. Corey Booker. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Corey, the situation Booker. J Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think J Wow. That's got to be like Marianne J Wow Williamson, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe uh, I don't know. Who, who's Elizabeth Elizabeth Snooky Warren. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> God, we're using a we're using a literally a ten year old MTV ridiculous reality show to reference the the American Democratic <laughs> political primary. Right. But right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I, I like I said, I think a few a few weeks ago you could have said Booker was in there. I don't think he is right now. I think I think predictably uh, Harris has taken his lane, and I think okay. you know. I, I I think the interesting thing also is that a lot of times. You know, during I mean, during 2016, there was a moment where I felt like Cruz was gaining on Trump and there was a moment where I mean, there were moments where other people jumped up there. Right. I mean, there's always moments like that there. Mm -hmm. And especially after the original front runner, you know, the Jeb or whoever gets gets dethroned, there's a little bit of jockeying for position, but it's very little of that is very final or determinative. Mm hmm. You know, Bernie Sanders is not doing so great right now, necessarily. But I think the fact that Joe Biden has been shown to be a little bit of a paper tiger here by Warren, I think that benefits everybody a little bit. And it benefits Warren in the immediate. uh, Sorry, Harris. Yeah, I think it benefits Harris in the immediate term. But I don't think that that necessarily is the long term outcome. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whose support goes where. And, you know, it has, you know, all things being equal, it does seem like as Warren rises, Bernie goes down. But that's only because, like, every other vote is spoken for. 
you know, they're, they're really just fighting over the same voters right now. But yeah, like you said, once the air goes out of the Biden balloon a little bit more, it'll be interesting to see where those people go. And how's Korea these days? Any any news to report? Oh, it's it's getting hot. I, I saw an article. I saw an article earlier that I didn't read, but the headline was something about how like uh, Donald Trump is changing the way that liberals in Korea and conservatives in Korea view America. Right. Mm. Because traditionally conservatives have been very pro America and, you know, Korean liberals have been a little bit more dubious about America's benevolence in the world or whatever. But because, you know, basically because uh, because President Moon Jae-in has been able to kind of take advantage of Donald Trump's naivety and break with breaks with tradition on North Korea, liberals are a little bit more, you know, warming to South to America and conservatives have started calling Donald Trump a basically a friend of the communists, mm-hmm. which is something that they have mm. very rarely done, if ever, mm. of an American president. So usually that's an insult that's reserved for left wing politicians in Korea from them. So mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I think it's I don't necessarily think it's a good thing. I think like I think it's a good thing if left wing people in Korea are more pro America in a way. But at the same time, I don't think they should be pro Donald Trump. I think it's very naive and short sighted to think that this guy's going to do anything good for South Korea. Right. So and if, if you're if you're going to be five years later, if you're going to be supportive of relationships with America because you hope that we have another president like Donald Trump, then I don't think that your support is <laughs> what we need to be you know, aiming for in that way. Right, right. Definitely. Oh, and, you know, you always you always get mad when I don't ask this, but any music lately you want to tell the people about? <laughs> oh man, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. There have there have been several songs that I've shazammed recently, but I can't think of any of them right now. Mm. God, I, I'm sure that like five minutes after this phone conversation, I'll like check my Shazam and find, oh yeah, this thing's awesome. Oh yeah, but honestly, well, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't think of anything right now. I may be reaching a midlife crisis point because everything on the radio is starting to sound good to me again after me being an old man about it. So, you know, <laughs> listening to the uh, listen to the Migos uh, a lot. I got the uh, Offset with Cardi B, Clout. I've been listening to that. I got uh, let's see who I who did that Suge song, uh, little little baby or Dub Baby or somebody. Um, <laughs> anybody? Yeah. <laughs> I- Maybe it's my turn to be the old man here because I have no idea what you're talking about. Vaguely <laughs> threatening to me, Bob. <laughs> I wish you'd stop talking. It's making me very uncomfortable. Do it different. I don't understand it. Get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> Get off my lawn. Exactly. Uh, ball goes no. in my yard again. I'm keeping it. <laughs> no, but like um, I no, I, I've always been very, very, very uh, dismissive of this attitude that. Oh, I like the real hip hop, the old hip hop. I don't like this new shit that's out there today. I like the I like Tupac and Biggie. Can't we just get back to the greats when hip hop was great? And it's like, <laughs> you know, like I, I listened recently. I listened to OK, I, I will say one song that I recently listened to again, which was and I can comment on this was Nelly's uh, Country Grammar. OK, mm, yeah, you're really keeping up with the new music. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I'm 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 like Barbara Streisand here. It's like uh, what is it? The way we were. Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I I still remember. I I still feel slightly guilty. I don't know if I even sh- should even tell this story, but like, I was wanting to buy. Like I think I think Tony Saunders or somebody from Mitchell, 
he let me borrow his country grammar album and I let him borrow some other album. And then after a couple of weeks we traded back or whatever, and it was an awesome album. So I was going to go buy it, but like for some reason I couldn't buy it in Bedford or whatever. So I had to go up to Bloomington and my mom was working at borders books and music at that point. And so I went in there to buy the album and when I went to buy it, I must've been like 17 years old or something, but you had to be 18 to buy it or something. And so the, there was an African-American woman working the checkout counter there. And she said, Oh, I can't sell this to you. You're not old enough. And I said, Oh, well, okay. Well, my mom works here. So if I get her permission, can I buy it? And she's like, Oh yeah, yeah, I guess that's okay or whatever. And so I got my mom's permission and stuff. Fortunately, like my mom was probably not wild about me listening to, you know, gangster <laughs> rap or whatever, but you know, I don't know. They, they had a pretty, as long as we weren't playing like wildly offensive songs right in front of them or whatever, they took a pretty hands-off approach on what kind of music we listened to. <laughs> so, but then like, so she's like ringing me up and stuff and she like kind of mutters under her breath while she's, while I'm paying for it. Like, I ain't no, you know, slang for an African-American. I was like, oh shit. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I don't know, man, I'm sorry. I'm just appreciating the music or whatever. I'm not saying that anybody is this or that or whatever. And, you know, I know they use the word in the songs and stuff, but I don't know. That's just like a moment from high school. Wow. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, anyways, but in the uh, in country grammar, there's a line in there. Um, Maybe you can. Again, I think there were there have been two songs that I've mentioned. I forget the previous one I mentioned, but if you could mm-hmm. drop in the audio, that'd be awesome. Although I know that, you know, that'll get you taken down on the uh, YouTube or whatever. Yeah, you want the internet police to come for me? <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on. They, they can't arrest us all. They can arrest uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, perhaps. Get you in internet jail. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but, the song, but there's a line in the song where he says, you know, and I'm knocking, I'm knocking. Uh, Bill Gates, Donald, Donald Trump, Trump, let me in, in now. now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, wow. And so I was like, I was like, because I never heard that part. It was kind of, it's kind of like a nasally inflected tone or something in the song or whatever. I didn't really hear the Donald Trump part or something for some reason. But I saw the comments under the YouTube video of that, and like people were like, oh, so black people like Donald Trump back in like the year two thousand or whatever, but now they don't, huh? Isn't that hypocritical? It's, it's like motherfuckers. We didn't know shit about Donald Trump's actual views, beliefs, and behaviors towards black people, except the Central Park Five and the, you know, perhaps the uh, redlining or whatever him and his dad were up to up in New York City there back in the day. Right. <laughs> you know, he was an aspirational figure. You know, he yeah. was perceived to be a wealthy individual. Yeah. You know, that's as far as people thought about it at that point. Yeah, but the, you got a lot of these, you know, Republicans on the internet trying to make political hay out of the fact that he mentions. It, it, in the context of him being a rich person, like mm-hmm. Bill Gates, Donald Trump, what do they have in common? They're both perceived to be rich at that time. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. that's, you know, that's a song that I've heard within the last week. And that's its modern political context as well. You're welcome. E-I-E-I-O. There you go. Exactly. Well, uh, E-40, another rapper in the 90s, had a song called Trump Change and, you know, kind of a play on the word chump change, uh, you know, taking a different direction. And I remember uh, right after uh, Donald Trump got elected, he like publicly like distanced himself from the song. He's like, I didn't know (laughs) what happened. It's like, you know, and that's, you know, nobody knew what happened back in the day. You know, it was just that's how it was. You know, it was just the 
Yeah, he was a hip hop headwoman, you know, back then. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, it's like Pastor Troy's old classic Saddam Hussein. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like he's not saying Saddam Hussein was a good person. He's saying it's kind of like an aspirational power level within a country. Yeah, exactly. Right? Pastor Troy, there's somebody we don't hear a lot from these days. Well, maybe he's uh, taking it back to the church. <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. Really always love the hardest decision I have to make. Finish the line, Bob. Uh, which is which uh, car, which car I'm going to take <laughs> when I skate. I'm riding Big Yo. Yeah, there you go. That was a that was a tune. That was absolutely a tune. (laughs) (laughs) As the children are saying. But uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I got to get to work. So. (laughs) All right, Bob. All right. Sounds good. All right. We'll do this again when they do it again. So yeah. Have a great day there. Talk to you later, man. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye.